Alright, welcome back to After the Battle Campfire, hosted by Tommy Chase and presented by The Modern Ronin. On today's show, I have my good friend and teammate, Jules McManus. Jules is a retired Navy diver who spent most of his Navy career on submarines, underwater, and even had a tour with Naval Special Warfare. His story took a different turn. And I met him while we were both trying out for Team Navy for the DoD Warrior Games, which is a Paralympics-style competition for inner service and foreign services to rehabilitate wounded, ill, and injured service members. And Jules tells his story. That's just so creepy that it does that. It's <laughs> this meeting is recorded. Yep. Oh, wow. All right. So here we go again for number two in like 48 hours, which is even crazier. That's that's a lot of podcasts in 48 hours. That's some serious editing. It is. I'm very chatty. <laughs> Better than me. Yep. So I'm here with my good buddy, Jules McManus. He is a friend of mine I met in 2008 in Mayport, Florida which is creepy in its own self. Yeah. Just a little. So got nothing but creep here. I know. So we met at the 2018 warrior games or Na- team Navy warrior games trials, uh, sure. where we were both trying to get on the team Navy team, which we eventually both did. So Jules, tell us the story from the beginning from little baby Jules. How did you end up in 2018 at Mayport doing the Warrior Games trials for Team Navy? And I mean, let's start from the very beginning. Well, from the beginning. So um, when a man loves a woman or a sailor finds a mermaid, um, (laughs) they they, they tend to couple. (laughs) A little little too far back? (laughs) No, no. Perfect. Perfect. Because you you were born up in where? Uh, I I was born in San Francisco, California. That's right. Presidio Army Hospital. My dad was stationed up at Mare Island. Was he Navy? He was. He uh, he was a navet. So he he came in, was a gunner's mate. Um, got out when he married my mom. They had my brother and decided that uh, it was a good time to come back in. So he came back in and was a gunner's mate, or not a gunner's mate, but a machine repairman. So he got um, navet. That was that um active duty service. or. Re- or reserve uh, broken service. Oh, okay. Okay. So he did, he came in, he volunteered instead of being, uh, drafted. He, he volunteered. He wanted to pick his own branch. So he came in, was a gunner's mate, um, as an only child, when he went to come back in, they wouldn't let him pick a war fighting rate. Uh, and I guess gunner's mate kind of was, um, if you remember the Sullivan's, the brothers, right. So as an only child, he couldn't be deployed into a war zone. So he, uh, they said, we need machine repairman. So he, he was an MR. Um, he did 11 years service total and ended up getting out in 79. Oh, wow. Yeah. His last, his last duty station was Great Mistakes. He was, at, he was an A school instructor there. So he was, uh, what year was that? That was 1979. Oh, damn. As damn. an MR one. So was, he was part of the Bearded Clan or... He was could, could do the beard. I don't know if your dad actually he, did it or not. He did. He actually have uh, 
got a really great painting my uncle did um of my dad and um about four of his buddies um a little over half more bearded out and they're all line, leaning up against the side the side rails on the ship nice nice yeah. so you you had this thing in your early childhood for higher latitudes didn't you um <laughs> yeah san francisco then what yes, you I grew, up, I, I grew up in southwestern michigan and spent most of my childhood um hunting and fishing in the northern latitudes of michigan and up in the upper peninsula so how far away from um kalamazoo were you that's the one uh, place i know in michigan <laughs> funny thing so i i grew up 45 minutes north of kalamazoo oh okay okay um so, every year as a kid probably till about the year a couple of years after my little brother was born the neighbors had a camper and we do this road trip to their grandparents house in uh kalamazoo it was on one of the lakes and pontoon boated the whole nine yards. Yep. So now did you go to school in Kalamazoo or in Michigan? Or? I did. I went, I went through, I grew up in a town called Delton, which is about 45 minutes North of Kalamazoo or 45 minutes South of Grand Rapids or 45 minutes North of Battle Creek, which is kind of the big triangle of first Southwestern Michigan. Uh, we had a population of about 3000 people. Oh, wow. Um, so I graduated, uh, I graduated high school in 1993. I started and finished school in Delton. And uh, shoot, we did. I think I had a graduating class of about 92 people, 93 people. Oh, damn. You had this yeah. tiny class. Yeah. That, well, we were, we were a big class <laughs> for, for our area. So it's, it's mostly, uh, you know, in that area, it's mostly factory workers and farmers. And, uh, you know, we grew up, my brother and I were, uh, would work on farms. So we would work on a pig farm and a, and a hog farm or a hog farm and a dairy farm. And then we'd bale uh, winter wheat and bale hay. And, uh, and in exchange, we would get a whole hog from one of the farms and we'd get a half a side of beef from another farm. And then we would hunt and fish for the, for other substance. So at what age did you know you were going to go in the military? Um, <laughs> I did the, I was supposed to come in in 1993 and go to boot camp in Orlando to be an SH. Um, yeah, no, right. That um, I, I was a delayed entry. I, I did, did the delayed entry in December of '92, and uh, you know, prior to that, I had hair not too dissimilar from yours. And so, for Christmas, I cut my hair off for my parents and uh, showed them that I had enlisted. Um, my brother had already enlisted. He had came in in '89. He was a pattern mold maker in Virginia and did a tender tour. What the hell is a pattern mold maker? <laughs> um, it's, it's a, it's a long gone right now. They've been merged with HTs, I think. So, so we, we used to have to snipes. We used to, we used to have draftsmen and pattern mold makers and pattern mold makers were, you know, the, the, uh, you know, because you're from California, the bear that's on the, on the plaque for the, the USS California. I have never been on board the USS California. Oh, okay. Well, because California's state bear. is the bear, right? Which is dead, extinct. Yeah, <laughs> there. We have them here. <laughs> but much, well, we have bears, but uh, the actual bear on the California flag is a grizzly. Ah. And the last one was killed in like, there, there's a whole Joe Rogan episode where he goes off about, there's a whole history behind killing the very last one, which ate a guy. And so they went out and they had to put it down. Oh, wow. Yeah, so our bear is an extinct animal, much probably like half of California right now. Yeah, 
<laughs> you mean the hat that's not burnt? <laughs> yeah. So, um, back, back so is that like a fabricator then? So no, what he did is he, uh, he would actually like hand carve the, the castings or the, the molds. Oh, and wow. then make, make a casting, like do a, do a sand cast or do a, do a clay cast, uh, and then set it up so they could do molds and do, so, so he, he would do bronze molds and. So yeah. like no shit, um, true artisan work. Yeah. Like true artisan work. Wow. Um, he, he loved what he did, but he was not a big fan of the Navy and not a big fan of being away from home. So he did, uh, my brother did four years and got out as a PM two. And, uh, and moved back. He actually bought some property off my folks and moved back home and went to work in the same factory my dad was in. Oh, wow. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. So what's he doing now? Um, he is, he has made a amazing, uh, progression. So he, uh, he went from working on, on the line in a factory to working in maintenance in a factory to becoming the maintenance engineer for a factory. Um, when the plant shut down, he went and was, cause he was very good at his job and he's very good with, uh, programming for CNC's and, and modern, more modern progressive computers and robotics. So he is the he was a he was a traveling maintenance engineer. He did some work for GM and for Ford, and oh, wow. uh, finally got picked up by a plant up uh, just south of Grand Rapids. He became a plant management manager, and uh, that didn't set well for him. It wasn't wasn't good stress for him. Uh-huh. So he uh, he took a step back and became a uh, he's he's a plant he's a plant maintenance engineer. That's it. So, a- pretty uh interesting course of action yeah so here here he is you know he uh, he graduated high school in 1989 did four years in the navy um he's picked up a couple of college classes along the way but he's one of the one of the dying breed that's just really he's absolutely brilliant super talented um but not a lot of formal education wow oh man i hate i hate the setup it just like froze for a second i'll be right back over there yep so where are you i see you back to me there we go okay that was really weird this i still working the kinks out on this guy so give us a break <laughs> um so 93 happens sh orlando something changes something changes um i married my my high school sweetheart you guys have been together that long no oh okay <laughs> Like, like most sailors, I'm divorced. <laughs> okay. I was going to say she's tolerated you that long. Um, she's tolerated me a lot longer than anybody ever expected. Um, but yeah, that's, that's uh, Laura is number two. So what happened with your delayed entry then? Um, I took a delayed entry discharge. So that's the only negative mark in my service record. Wow. Because that, that did follow me when I came back on active. Okay. Something weird's happening here. Um, either you're frozen or I'm frozen. I'm frozen. All right, there yeah. we go. Okay, I'm gonna be probably have to be doing this a couple times. Um, anyway, so that's what I was gonna ask you next is what was the um, the issue with you coming back in then? Or um, I don't even know if you call it, would you call it coming back in or just the 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 catalyst the catalyst that sparked me to come to to actually fully enlist and follow through. Um, I was working in construction in Kalamazoo. I was living, living and working in Kalamazoo. 
had been doing construction for a couple of years. I had uh, kind of alternated when we would drive either a trash truck or a dairy truck, depending uh, when construction was slow. And uh, kind of burnt the bridge at the at the dairy where I worked because they, they went out of business and sold out to another company. And driving trash in Michigan is not the most pleasant experience. Um, roads get awful icy, awful snowy. Um, it just, it's not a fun, fun adventure. And the, uh, the co-owners of the construction company I worked for uh, were a husband and wife, and the husband got caught sleeping with the secretary. <laughs> <laughs> there went your job. So, um, you know, the writing was on the wall that that job wasn't going to last much longer. So uh, Laura and I had been dating for about a year, and I... So wait, what, at what point in time did you guys do, <laughs> you and the first wife get the divorce? We got married October of 93, and it was pretty short-lived. We, uh, we moved to Battle Creek, lived down in the post-edition area for a few months, um, went through a separation, got back together, went over to, moved over to Kalamazoo, um, and just, it was, um, I grew up Irish Catholic, she grew up Irish Protestant, and it just wasn't, uh, we, were, we were very passionate, but very toxic for each other. And uh, I wish her all the best in the world. She was an, a wonderful woman, but it wasn't an environment that either one of us wanted to try to raise kids in. Makes sense. So, and I, I know you're a really passionate father, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you and Laura dating, like you were saying. Yep. Um, we, were, we were dating and uh, I was, I had a, my roommate and I got a wild hair and said, hey, let's join the Navy. And so in February of February of 1997. Damn. We, okay, uh, so it's a pretty big gap. Yeah, there, there's a pretty big gap there. I, like I said, I, I worked in construction. I drove dairy. Um, worked in a factory for a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> jump, let me jump back real quick. So, obviously, your your dad and your brother were in the Navy. Yes. And when it came time for you to think about going in, did you ever have a thought that it was anything but the Navy? No. Okay. Now, for, for, as, for as long as I've, for anytime I've ever considered military service, it was always going to be the Navy. Um, it just, I couldn't see, I couldn't see a better way. It's, it's what I knew. It's what I grew up with. Um, you know, my uncle was a, was a bos uh, boiler tech. You know, like I said, dad was a gunner's mate and uh, MR. My brother was a powdered mold maker. Um, you know, my great grandfather was a merchant Marine. So you had uh, to see in the bit. blood. Yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's, there's salt water in the veins. <laughs> so you go talk to the recruiter and I'm really curious to know, like, how did they handle your, I came this close to enlisting and then I bailed on your delayed entry and now I want to come back. Um, they needed submariners. So, and <laughs> so, um, my, my buddy and I came in, we were, we we're trying to do the, uh, oh shoot. I don't remember the name of the program anymore, but it's where you and a buddy come in. You got to go through all your schools together. Yeah, they, I, I think it was just called like the Buddy Program or something, something hey, really buddy, dumb yeah. like that. Yeah, it's that that would be probably it. it. <laughs> the Navy, the Navy in the '90s did not have a lot of creative naming things like they do no. now. No, there there wasn't a yeah. So, so we uh, we went to MEPS in February of '97, uh, and um, actually we'd both gone to become CBs, and CBs were locked up. So they said if you wanted to be a CB, you got to come back next year. Cause they're, they're locked up already. We've used up all the billets. So 
Um, he became a surface sonar tech and I became a submarine machinist mate, auxiliary man. So what was your age at that point in time? 22. Okay. So you were still in the younger, you weren't, you weren't like one of the older delayed guys. No, I was, I was the oldest delayed guy in my unit, but, um, and we, we didn't come in. I shipped out August 14th and, uh, Jason came in, I think a month after I did. So I'm trying to think here, the, it was either 96 or 97 that they shut down two of the three boot camps, right? It was, it was, uh, I want to say 96 that they shut down, um, Orlando and then 97, they shut down San Diego. So you end up, uh, literally taking a hop across Lake Michigan to Chicago, then up to Great Lakes, right? Yes, I did. Uh, what time of the year was that? That was August. Okay, so not quite as bad as my January twenty seventh arrival date. Yeah. Growing up in Michigan, I knew better than to be in to be in uh, Great Lakes when there was snow. <laughs> yeah, but even at that, I mean, you, you never know what could happen at boot camp. You could very well end up being there when there's snow. At uh, that, that's a true statement. Uh, well, and you were uh, you were an MM, right? I was. I was. I was at that time. I was trying to become a machinist man, auxiliary man for submarines. So was that at? Um... Nope, that's Groton. Oh, okay. Okay. All, so all, surface snipes. Yep. Are, surface right, snipes right. are Great Lakes. And then um, the submarine community all goes to Groton. Which, you know, eight weeks after boot camp, two weeks Liberty puts you somewhere. Oh, in December when you go to Connecticut. No, October. Really? Yeah. Oh, wait, August. August, August eight weeks. Yeah, that's true. Okay. So August 14th, class 427, uh, ship 11. So how long is the, is your time going through all the sub prep schools? So obviously your MM, your psyche valve. So before you, before I even went, got to go to a school, we go through, uh, we went through basic enlisted submarine school. And before you could class up before basic up submarine, basic enlisted submarine school, you had to take and fill your, your psyche valve. So how long was the process was that? Um, so we left, we got 48 hours of Liberty after boot camp, and then we're put on a fl- on a plane and flown to Norwich, Connecticut. Um, picked up, I think there was six of us that were that flew out from boot camp. Um, the cl- and then we get put into an exodus for about a week, and then a week before you class up, everybody sits down in the this open bay barracks and takes a psych uh, the written psych test for about four hours. So is it just like a one day thing then? Yeah. It, oh. uh, well, you got a day of the, a day of the written and a day of uh, like interviews if they've got questions. Wow. For some reason, I you know I don't talk to a lot of bubbleheads. It's what we call the the, the normal humans call submariners. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I never even thought about asking how long that that whole course of action was. No, uh, Bess. I don't, gosh, I'm trying to think of how long that was. Bess was only like six or eight weeks it wasn't terribly long and then your a school i'm assuming wasn't too long in itself no uh machines made auxiliary a school was about the same like four to six weeks um and then there's a depending on which class of ship you go to there's an auxiliary pipeline that you pick up um so a lot of the guys that stayed in groton and were went from the school side to the to the boats right there um and yes it's boats the right term for submarines yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know a lot of people in the Navy have a problem calling ships boats. <laughs> Surface vessels are all ships. 
Yeah. Those that sink intentionally are called boats. We have boats and targets. <laughs> yeah. I was a ground sailor, so I don't care either way. Yep, you're good. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so uh, let's see, I, I classed up there in October, did best, um, had a pause over the Christmas break before we classed up in January. And then I went to Bangor, Washington to a Trident class submarine. I was on the USS Michigan. Uh, when she was an SSBN, she's since been converted to an SSGN. Um, so that would be a sub, what is it? Subsurface ballistic nuclear. Nuclear. And then the other one is guided nuclear. Yes. Uh, had a friend, Mike, who did some of the SSGN stuff. Nice. Like right when that, right after they converted them. Yep. So yeah. you pass all that. You're out of school. So yep. how, how long of a pipeline was it from boot camp to your first? subs i was uh, i was at my first command in let's see keegan was born in march no keegan was april so i was there in march okay so six months give or take about six months okay that was a quicker that honestly that's a quicker pipeline than i would have expected because i had to once i got there i ended up before the the boat was still at sea and my crew was at sea so i was kind of hanging out in a limbo waiting for the boat to get there and just kind of you know doing what any young fireman does and cleaning floors and taking out trash because you know learning those fine janitorial skills yes so to clarify for those people who are not navy centric who are watching this the navy goes by rates not necessarily ranks per se so um when you're below an e4 below a petty officer there's basically three giant categories you fall in. You fall in a, a seaman, which is pretty much uh, anything but um, it's a, it's the guys sort of down in the hall. Any deck rate. Yeah, any, deck, anything. From the so deck, I don't know. Admin, all those. Then you have the firemen, which are the people that we call, that I call, you put them in the pit and they work on the engines and the boilers and all that. The snipes of the Navy. And then you have the airmen, which obviously are not, technically on board the ship they're above the ship yeah. so, well, the, just so and, and there are construction men for those that make it to the cbs as well that's true but they really don't count yeah <laughs> i know i'm gonna have a friend who's a diehard cb i'm gonna get shit for this but that's okay well, because yeah. that's what we do cbs are like the navy you know they're they're, 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 that, they're that hybrid between marines and the navy <laughs> well my first command was with cbs and let me tell you you have no distinction between working CBs doing their their actual construction jobs yep. in a civilian construction site, not limited to the beer at zero nine, <laughs> <laughs> but that was also back in the early nineties. Yeah. So you get there. Um, one quick question for your advancement: yep. Were you guys all MMs, or did they already had had they already started breaking it all out to MM ox, MM sub, MN? Uh, there was uh, there was a delineation between MM nuclear, MM auxiliaryman, MM surface. I think that I think that was the, the three distinctions. Because there's like six of them now, I think. Yeah, it's well, it's crazy, um, and it's good because yeah. it's a crowded, it's a weird rate. Well, there was a while. I mean, we had we had torpedoman, and then torpedoman became MM weapons, and then they became torpedoman again. So the, the Navy's got a long history. When did they become torpedoman again? I, uh, last couple of years, I think. Oh wow, I didn't. I could, I could be mistaken, but I thought they had uh, become TMs again. That's good. I actually yeah. like that better. Yeah. 
so onto your career. So you get there, you're waiting. Um, I do know a couple of people in my past that, you know, they went to a ship that was at sea and because they were surface, they actually got flown out to the ship. So you got the pleasure of, a. Yeah, they were they were due back within the first three to four weeks of, of getting of, of me arriving out there. So I got settled into the barracks, um, rode up an emergency leave chip because Laura was pregnant with Keegan, who was our firstborn son. Um, I had left her. Her and I had gotten had been married in December of '97. Um, we got married in December, and then we had Keegan in April. So I know with the sub force, you guys have um, one ship two crews I, I forgot whether it's alpha and bravo or gold blue and blue. gold yeah yep. so when whatever crew you're on blue or gold when that came home and you're the newbie yep what what happens to a, a engineering type guy when his ship's out to sea and you just got out of school and you're ready to use your your skills um well, for starters, I just got out of school, so I can't. I wouldn't say I had any any real skills. To I had some, you know, basic book knowledge and some some limited life skills of, that a twenty two year old would have, um, which meant I was ready to conquer the world. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but no, that's uh, we were put into a holding pool. So same thing with some, uh, several of the guys that had transferred from other other boats. Um, they'd gone to the you know uh, as a, as rotations go. Uh, so there were, I think, 10 of us that were waiting to be waiting to for the Michigan Gold Crew to come back so we could go to work. And, uh, you know, as a as a brand new submariner, your first job is to get qualified because you've got uh, you got one year from the day you check on to your to your boat to get your your dolphins, your war, your submarine warfare or your fish. And if you don't get them within that year, then um you are found non-susceptible and go to the surface to become a surface MM. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you were doing, were you doing your quals while you were not on board and while the, while the sub was out at sea? Um, there were, there were some things that we could do. So be, like I said, the, the gold crew was coming back. Um, so my first, my first three months on the boat um, were with the other crew had the other crew had the boat. So I spent a lot of time going through the picking up some of the ox pack schools so I went to like a hydraulic school and I went to a machine tool operator school and I went to a, a diesel mechanic school. Um, uh, you know, just kind of picking up some of those little schools. I went to some firefighter trainers because uh, submarines don't have DC men, right? DC men are the, the damage, damage control personnel. So they're like, the, they're, they're the firefighters and pipe fitters. So um, a gang or auxiliary men are the, you know, we are the submarine HTs or the surface HTs. We are the surface MMs, DC men. Um, we handle all the damage control equipment. Uh, our job on the boat is to manufacture, purify, and store oxygen, scrub CO2 out of the air, out of the breathing air, maintain atmospheres so that uh, you know we can maintain that 21% oxygen. And then we're also monitoring um, for pressures and vacuums. So we you know we'll bounce between about a 15 pound either way. So 15 pound being one atmosphere, uh, 14.7 pounds per square inches in atmosphere. But um, and then we also ran the high air, high pressure air compressors, the diesel generator, um, the trim and drain system, which is kind of how we keep the submarine level. Or oh. and, and then uh, the maintain the air for ballast tanks so we could surface or submerge respectively. 
all those systems. If basically, if it wasn't nuclear or electrical, it belonged to a gang. Oh wow! So we also yeah. had all the plumbing and sanitary systems, all the storage tanks. It was a a lot of work for a small crew. Yeah, you you guys. I mean, you guys basically unlike a surface vessel you're not doing unreps where uh ship comes alongside a surface vessel and transfers fuel food and uh whatever critical equipment they need we'll uh, we'll do a stores load before we go to sea um they're nuclear powered so we don't have to worry about refueling um at least not in a time not in any kind of like set timeline um so we would like my longest underway was 89 days without seeing you know from surface from submerged to surface. Um, and then my shortest, I think we went two weeks. So you were, were you always on, well, let's go back to this. Your, the Michigan, was that home ported in Connecticut? That was home ported in Bangor, Washington. Okay. So you, wow. So you went from Michigan to Great Lakes to Connecticut to Washington. Yep. And I was on, I was on the Michigan for four and a half years uh, tried three times to stay on board or to go back to, to do back-to-back sea duty. Um, because I made it, you know, I got there as a fireman or uh, E3 and had qualified everything an A-ganger can qualify up through chief of the watch, uh, as a second class petty officer. So in those four years total, in that t- total span of four years, that's not including boot camp and schools. Right. You, you picked up, uh, so you went to E5. Now, did you come in as a fireman or did you come in as a... I came in as an E1. Okay, an FR. Yep. I, I was a, a fireman recruit. Um, I made E2 leaving boot camp because of good behaviors and yada, yada. Um, I knew how to hide things well. <laughs> yeah, I, I know you. There is no good behavior. <laughs> yep. So you leave the Michigan. Yep. Is that the one that you did the longest underway? That's the, uh, that was or, my, that's the only ship or sub I've ever served on. Which is where I was going to go next. Yep. But let me ask you some things about the sub. So yep. obviously we talked, you guys kind of just do BS work when you're in port waiting to when, pick when up the boat. When you're in port waiting for the boat to come in, you're, you're running through tactical trainers. Um, there's some, you know, great simulation facilities with hydraulics. It's like a ride at Disney. Um, you've got the, the screens in front of you. So everything looks like it's supposed to, everything acts like it's supposed to. So we run through damage, uh, damage control systems, scenarios. We run through nuclear launch missile scenarios. We run through torpedo launch scenarios. Um, you know, this was theoretically the end of the cold war in the late nineties and the North Pacific. So, um, we ran through a lot of different scenarios for different operations um, so you do, and then you'd pick up any miscellaneous schools. Um, you know, I went to a sound silencing school. I went to a shipboard instructor school. Um, you know, so you'd, you'd pick up different schools. You'd get some family time in, you know, Laura and I, like I said, Laura and I had been married. We had Keegan just as I was getting to the boat. Um, we had Brendan while we were stationed on the Michigan. So what was your, what was a routine like for you on board ship as a, third class someone who had a little bit of time on the boat but in a little bit of leadership but you know as a as a third class petty officer an e3 or e4 what? depending on who your e your lpo or alpo is you either learn leadership quickly or you nothing but a glorified e3 well so submarines are a little bit different from conventional navy um one is that 
you know, unless all, mostly enlisted E6 and down, everybody's on a first name basis. Um, you know, most of the officers are kind of the same way and chiefs have always been that way. Um, so it was, you know, more, more relaxed in that respect. Uh, you live on an 18 hour day. So you've got six hours of watch, six hours of maintenance and qualifications. And if you're qualified, you get six hours of sleep. Damn. So, you know, as far as leadership goes, um, you know, chiefs and LPOs definitely have their respective jobs and respective positions, but everybody else, um, you're no better than the guy next to you. Oh, okay. So it, it, it was much like um, some of the Marine units I worked with when it came to corpsmen in platoons, yep. you're kind of on a first name basis and yep. you can do the job. You know, that was, that's part of your, part of your warfare, your submarine warfare qualification is you, you have to be able to do anybody's job on the boat. Oh, okay. So, you know, from radio men sending messages to sonar techs, watching them, watching the green screen, green screens and what listening for blips um, to the, the nukes, you know, being able to maintain pressures and control of things. Okay. Don't want to be, have that responsibility. Radiation <laughs> so, scares me. There, there's a reason why submariners are angry. <laughs> I think. And hairless too, apparently. Just kidding. So um, <laughs> you left the Navy as a different rate than what you went in. And I as did. you were alluding to, the Michigan was your first and only sub. Yeah. I, left, I left the Michigan in 2002. Um, for Groton, Connecticut, to work at the intermediate maintenance activity that was there. So I was I went from. Is that you know, like being, a shore shore billet yeah, or something? It's a shore it's a shore billet doing surface uh, or doing maintenance on others other submarines. Oh, okay. So I was uh, I went to work for Thirty One Fox was in the air and hydraulic shop, um, and picked up first class shortly after getting there. So I made first class off the the spring exam. So, um, so what is that? Five so or six years in? Five years. I'd been in for five. Was working on working on six. So, what happened after that? Um, well, as while I was when I get when I got picked up for first class, um, four of us in the shop made first, and we were four of I, I think our shop made up half of the first half of the sailors that made first class for our rate that year or that cycle. Cause we had a, had a good study plan and, and, you know, really put the, put the work in. To, um, unders to understand how hard that is in the Navy. Um, the Navy has a, I would call it a more unique. And honestly, when I was going through it, I thought I hated it, but looking <laughs> at how all the other branches do it, I think we had the best advancement system yeah. for E4 through E6 um you test and depending on your your rank e4 the test weighs higher than it for e5 e6 all of that but the navy likes to add some really weird questions like double entendres like in in corman if you have a massive bleeder which of the following do you not use when you're using this to not use that and you're like <laughs> huh You've got to pay attention to the question and answer the question that's asked. <laughs> so there's, so to have four guys at one shop pick up on an advancement cycle is a pretty impressive feat. Yeah. That's uh, we had, a, we had a really great LPO who helped us 
and put us on a good study regimen. So we're, you know, we'd work seven hours a day and then study for two. Oh, wow. And that was every day. And, you know, uh, submariners aren't at that time, we're not very big on PT. So instead of doing PT, we were doing mental PT. Well, hey, um, that works too. Yeah. So in, when, it, when we picked up, we couldn't have six first classes in a shop. So we had to be farmed out to different places. And uh, Scotty Fusco was the command master chief of NSSF, the Naval Submarine Support Facility. And he reached out and asked me to be his chief master at arms. And again, submarines don't have those rates. We don't have MAs. Um, and as a young, you know, five years in, only knowing submarines, had no idea what an MA was or what they did. So we sat down in his office, he pulled me in his office and asked me to do the job. I said, I have no idea what that is. So we kind of talked about it a little bit. And I said, you know, what? I'm, I'm going to make some mistakes. He's like, good. I expect you to be honest with me. He's like, the fact that you're telling me that I, I'm, I'm good. Um, Scotty Fusco is definitely one of the best cobs I've ever had the pleasure to work for. So um, people understand uh, Cobb is chief of the boat. Yes. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. Cause I mean, we have the Navy has such a unique language and it's one of the things that I hope that this show, like for all my sailor friends, we can start to integrate that into the lexicon yep. instead of copy that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, um, you know, I went to work for, I went to work for Master Fusco as the command master at arms running the urinalysis program became the first lieutenant, uh, took over the CFL, the command fitness leader program. So I ran the base, the lower base gym and I had, I had a, shoot, I think I had 40 sailors working for me the, just, between. Just to clarify, first lieutenant does not mean that you got commissioned and mm -hmm. had the rank of first lieutenant. First lieutenant just means it's a, it's a deck division. You're running, I, I owned all the sailors that were either waiting to go to a boat or had been kicked off a boat. Um, so they were, you know, the janitors of the Navy. So in a way you were, you were literally doing what you were waiting on when you got to go out in the first place. When I, when I got to the, when I got to the boat or, or when, when, I got got to, to, uh, when I got to banger the first time. Yeah. When you got yeah. to banger for the first time. I, I had, I had become the first class petty officer that I had worked for four, five years earlier. And probably hated. No, actually, I, I don't know that, um. I don't know. I've ever worked with anyone that I thoroughly hated. Well, you know what I mean. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was a challenge, um, you know. Had, cause I, you know, I'd worked in construction and ran my own crews. I'd I'd had some life experience. So when I came in as a e nothing, um, I didn't know not to tell the chief, "Hey, I need this. I need this quarter inch Can you run back to the machine room and grab it for me?" And because my my arms were elbow deep into hydraulics on a nine on the nine valve. Uh, up in the control room which means nothing to anybody but a submariner um, um you know chief ran back and got got the allen wrench for me because it was just one of those things I, I had everything else there but that i either dropped it lost it or forgot it um so he ran back and grabbed it and i picked up a, a fun nickname that stayed with me for a while the what uh captain j oh nice, nice. <laughs> yeah so you do this time as the um yeah. the so, ma so I'm working, I'm working as the command master at arms. Um, I've been in Groton for about a year and a half. And, you know, because I ran your analysis, I would come in about five, zero five in the morning to, to pull the numbers to see who we we're going to have to, so we could have everything set up. So when everybody came in at 630, we could do the, do the year analysis. And uh, 
so I'd send out the morning, you know, the email out to the chiefs and uh, division officers every morning, as far as when we had your analysis and, you know, it wasn't uncommon for me to still be there at six thirty, seven o'clock at night, taking care of other admin, because if we had sailors that, you know, that had gone to mass or, you know, there's legal paperwork to take care of. Oh, so you were uh, really doing the job of an MA. Yeah. So did you do confinement or did, was that actually left to PMO? Um, we had, we had a brig on base. So I was a brig escort. So, um, I never did confinement, but I could, I could take somebody who is, who had been restricted or confined to, yeah, I, guess, I guess that's what I meant was, um, yeah. yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, I'd gone through the, you know, this is post nine 11. So I'd gone through ASF training and was the ASF coordinator ASF for those that don't know is the auxiliary security forces. So people like me that weren't MAs would augment those security forces for gate guards and, and security postures. So something, would, something tells me that that may come up later in our story too. It just maybe weird. <laughs> Cause that, that's one of those, that's one of those trainings that you do to get it out of the way, but it does come back and bite you in the ass later. Um, and not and necessarily that, bite you in the ass, but it does come around to. It, it, came, it came in handy later on in life. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, it was one of those days where I'd, I'd send an email at seven o'clock at night and I was getting ready to, to call it a day. And uh, master diver Al Oberbeck called my office and said, Hey, what time did you come in this morning? Zero five. He's like, did you go home today? Said, no, I was going to go home here in a little bit. He's like, come to my office. I'm like, okay, well, who the hell are you? I'm the master diver. Okay, well, what is that? Because <laughs> again, yeah, you know, as a submariner, my only experience for divers was the effing diver tags um, that were the bane of existence. It's a, you know, that lockout tagout system. So let's move into this world because uh, like I said, you came in as an MM, yeah. but you retired as a Navy diver. I did. So Al had, uh, Al invited me down to his office for he, uh, he asked if I drink beer. So well, hell yeah, I drink beer. <laughs> so we went down, went down to his office, sat down with him and uh, one of his chiefs, and had a conversation. He said, "Hey, I want you to come work for me." So well, what do you do? And he kind of told me the job of a navy diver. And I'm like, "Well, shit, I do that as an A ganger." He's like, "I know." He's like, "This just lets you wear green shorts and uh, blue and gold t-shirt, and you get you don't have to be inside the hole. You can do all your work outside of it." I'm like, "Well, that sounds pretty damn cool." <laughs> So uh, did you go to the formal dive school or did you go through, um, I guess you would have had to gone to actually have the ND rate. No, I had a, it was a, it was a, it was a year long, a little over a year long process to even get to go to that school. Because again, submariners um, don't normally get released from their rate. Um, especially oh, as right. a, as an MM one, you know, I, I made first class in five years. The detailer wanted me to be the LPO on the San Francisco before she hit a mountain. Damn. So my next, my next duty station was supposed to be Guam. So you, you, they had a career path and planned out for you. Uh, yeah. Five year first class petty officers yeah. outside of that community and outside, of, especially outside of the nuke sub community. That's pretty unheard of. Yeah. And you're also what, 27, 28 at the time. Yeah, it's uh, I was 27. So, so no I offense. 20, when I made first class, 28, 20, you know, 28, 29, um, I was due to, I was going to be 30 when I transferred. No offense, Jules. You were not a spring chicken at that point in time. Nope. I was not a spring chicken, but I was, uh, I was the right age for my peer group and I was online. I was on target to, to make chief pretty quickly. No, I meant for going the dive route. Oh, oh yeah. No. Um, 
Well, and you were saying yeah. that uh, you were there's also a, saying that uh, there's a, there's a divers, funny story before I get there. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say you were also saying that divers were not known for their physical stature. <laughs> or I'm sorry, submariners were not known for their physical fitness. No, submariners were not known for their physical fitness, which is why it took me a little over a year before I could even get to dive school. I took my uh, took my first PT test for the screener test and failed it miserably. Um, divers have to do six pull-ups. I think I got one. Um, you have to swim 500 yards in under 12 minutes, uh, using one of two strokes that I had no idea what they were. I didn't know how to do the breaststroke or the side stroke. So those are the only two that they were giving you the option to do. That's the only two. That's, that's your only two options, breaststroke or side stroke. So I, uh, I failed, I failed the swim. I failed the pull-ups. I barely passed the push-ups, barely passed the sit-ups. And I think I failed the run because was uh, a, I was about to ask if there was a run. So was it the same? It's the same thing as a seal screener then. It is. Okay. So that's all the, uh, that's so all the special guys screener. Seal, uh, COD and diver and SWIC all go through a they don't very similar uh, screener. You know, at that, at that time, seals would do the, they would do the, the Navy run, then put on their boots and do a 5k. Oh, well, well. So that there, sucks. you know, there, there was an extra, and I think seals had eight pull-ups where we had six. But it was, it was basically that, that structure then. Yeah. Same structure. So what did your command say when you said, Hey, this master diver guy, which I have no idea exactly why he asked me to said, Hey, can I, uh, can I go play? Um, they're like, we need you here. Uh, you can go do that on your time. So I did. I went down and did PTs and I did some mud pump. Oh, no, I mean, actually asking to, to leave the rate. Oh, um, again, Scotty Fusco. Uh, hands down, best mass chief I've ever had the pleasure to work for. He, uh, he was very happy with the work I was doing. Um, knew I was outside my element, element and was doing great things for him. So um, don't get me wrong, I made a lot of mistakes. You know, I, I learned a lot about leadership in that first couple of years. And there's some guys that I definitely owe some apologies to because I yelled at some people that I shouldn't have yelled at, especially at the wrong, at the wrong time. But those so, were good, good learning lessons. So here you are at going on six years, I'll assume. No. Um, you get your order or you, what happens? Yeah. Do you get orders? You do. Go? I yep. mean, do you, did you get so my, 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 detail refused, my detail refused to release me? Um, Scotty Pusco happened to find out when the detours were coming through because they they do their you know every their, couple their years they do their, their their tour and visit commands um so we went and we sat down with my detailer and scotty said hey i need you to release him and the the agreement was that when i failed out of dive school i was going to go to the san francisco and guam so you you get released <laughs> i get with, released with this ominous uh, you're going to yep. get it up the butt when, as soon as you're, as soon as you fail, because we have no faith in you. Yep. And, uh, the, um, in, in the interim, um, the master driver that had recruited me had made some mistakes and went to the brig and was forced retired. <laughs> um, that was fun. I got to be the, the investigator on that one. <laughs> so now let me ask you this. Um, yeah. I know a little bit about your community, mainly from you and a couple other divers I know. Yep. Here you are going on 30. Yep. First class petty officer. You've been, you not directly or maybe directly have bent a few feathers leaving the sub community. 
yep. going to the dive community. Oh, yeah. Like I said, an older age, probably not in the prime 18 year old fitness condition. Cause this is what, 2002 ish? Uh, 2005. 2005. So they've already established at boot camp the whole uh, dive after boot camp. You go through that dive training thing. They do that. The, the they do that in two thousand six. Okay, so we're pretty close to seeing that that being implemented. I, yeah, I was. Uh, but let me finish this thought. You're the man who recruited you, the master diver who actually said, "I vouch for him." Gets yep. thrown in the brig and forced retired. Yep. How was that showing up to dive school? Um. The master diver that had to sign off on the master diver and the warrant that had to sign off on my package, um, the warrant signed off easy enough. He, we, we sat down and had a very long conversation. Um, I love two dogs to death. He is a phenomenal man. We've no, yeah, we've, uh, our paths crossed many times over the career. To clarify, a warrant is a warrant officer. So we have in the military, except for the air force, we have enlisted and commissioned officers in somewhere in between in this little Netherlands, there's a warrant officer. It's a whole category of W's. What is it? W one through five. Yeah. Yeah. So it's E one through E nine O one to O 10. And then somewhere in between are these warrant officers who are pulled from the enlisted ranks for the most part. Yeah. Uh, I, I think exclusively. Yeah. I don't yeah, think you can join as a warrant. Nope. Not in the Navy. I don't think in any service, but I think you're right. Um, so, sorry. I think I think army you can, but there's there's some caveats in there. That's Probably for have... their pilot programs. Yeah, for their Gila guys. Yep. But so back to where you were saying. So you, yeah. so had a great um, time with the warrant. Had a great time with the warrant. Um, we we like I said we we still talk now. So, um, and then Rod Atherton had come in to be the master diver to fix the. I'm trying to sanitize the words here, to fix the situation. <laughs> that was left behind or the, you know, the, the vacuum of leadership that was there when, uh, when Al left. So and was Rod, he, Rod was, was this... a brand, brand new, brand new master diver, brand new senior chief, fresh, shiny star. Okay. So I'm confused. So is this at dive school or is this at, uh, this is in Groton. So oh, okay. He, so this is up in Groton. He had to sign off on my, he had to sign off on my package before I could come. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and he, he said, you're not going to go. <laughs> He's like, uh, we, you're, you're too old, you're too senior, and you've got too much baggage. You've got a wife and kids, they need you here. And I said, nope, I'm going to go. And uh, I did everything I could, push PT, you know, I just, I, I sacrificed some aspects of my career to, to pursue this. And uh, he finally signed off on my package. And in March of 2005, I reported to dive school. And the first words that uh, Petty Officer First Class Foster said to me, go home. <laughs> I hadn't even checked in yet. I had my orders in hand, checking in the quarter deck. And he looked at me, so you're a first class Petty Officer. You're old as dirt. Go home. You don't belong here. <laughs> Welcome to dive school. So we're, I mean, we're literally in the middle of a war. That's a bad year for Iraq at that point in time, 2005. Yep. Did you ever question your choice? No. Um, you know, Laura and I had spent some time before I had ever routed the chitter, ever started the process to mud pup and the, to put in the extra work to get physically fit enough to be able to pass the screen test and uh, to work with the guys and put the hours in. 
um, you know, we had, she was, she was pregnant with Colin, our third son, when, uh, when this, when we started this process. So we had, you know, we already had two little ones and she was pregnant with a third and she, for whatever reason, supported this decision and thought it was a good, good idea. And I am too dumb to quit. So, <laughs> so you get to dive school. And I think the only impression that most of us, including myself, um, I have some other views on other dive schools, but the dive school, the, uh, Carl Bashir dive school, the men of honor, or yeah, men of honor, uh, that's depicted how even remotely accurate is what they teach you in dive school compared to what people think of it as. Um, there's a big difference between Hollywood and what actually happens. Um, you know, Carl Bashir is the Washington Navy Yard, but it's not terribly dissimilar. Um, you know, we've modernized the helmets. We moved from the Mark V. We stopped using that in 1985. Uh, you know, 1984, I think, were the last official dives. Uh, we have since brought it back, but more just for heritage dives. So um, is that the hard hat? Yeah, that's that That's that big uh, copper-looking helmet or brass helmet. Um, that's a big bubble in the suit with all the lead weights that hold the helmet onto your body. And then uh, the boots. So now we use a 27 pound, um, actually, I think we're transit, they're transitioning to steel helmets now, but it was a fiberglass helmet. So modern divers are called Tupperware divers by the old guys. By the oh, old guys. Yeah. Poor, poor Jules. So how long was your dive school then? Uh, just short of six months. So your entire boot camp to first ship was six months. And now this school in itself is yep. six months. Did you ever during that process think not necessarily believe that you would fail but did you ever think that this is going to be a lot harder than i expected or were you pretty mentally and physically there at that point in time? Um, i think i could have been physically better um but i've always thought that i could always be physically better so that's not a big shift there um mentally it was just putting in the work um you know we got the mixed gas math is not my strong suit so when we got to mix mix gas phase and doing the formulas, um, definitely had to put in some extra work there. Uh, charting has never been one of my strong suits, so that was a thank God I passed exam. <laughs> um, but going through the the physical dive stuff, you know, going through pool week, which is where pool week used to be at the front of the of the school, um, because you know, like like you said earlier, now. If you want to be anybody in the special operations community, you go through a common core and a screener up at Great Lakes and they kind of weed out and filter and they, they have a, we still have about a 70, 72% attrition rate at Great Lakes before they class up at A school um, because dive school is becoming A school. Um, but at that time, you know, guys would come down to, we, we classed up, shoot, we classed up 40 or 50, 45 people and we graduated 11. Wow. So, I mean, we, and no offense to our little frog friends, but we always talk about the, these courses that Bud has like the hardest, most attrition that uh, you'll see in the military, blah, 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 blah. Like I said, no, no, no taking away from, from the frogs. No. That being said, there are many schools like that. And I had no idea that dive school was that much of an attrition. Yeah. 
Uh, dive school and EOD school both. I mean, um, like I said, dive, dive EOD and SEAL all have all and still maintain about a 70% attrition rate. And that was one of the things that big Navy was concerned about. You just, we spend this money to send these kids to the school. You know, we send them TAD and we send, send them per diem or we cut orders, which costs money. And we move them to these schools and then two weeks in they fail and they go home and they go back to another commander somewhere else. So at, in the 2005 six time frame when you were there yeah uh, going through school was how am i trying to say this were you keeping your rate after you graduated or okay so the nd rate hadn't been established and nd rate didn't really get established until fall of 2006 okay but it was it was pretty close you were right there on the cusp um i was the second to last class to have first class petty officers go through it wow and I actually, I, I was very, I was very fortunate that year um, because I took, I had taken the chief's test in January and left for dive school in March. So when the exam results came out, as far as who made board, had I made board, there was you discussion about dropping me. Yeah. That, which would have, at that point in time, that would have made sense. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It, it totally would have made sense. Cause there's no sense. I would have, I would have been a garbage chief and useless to the fleet because I didn't have the experience that a Navy diver would need. I mean, and there are certain schools that that's totally fine. At my field med school in 2004, I think we had a senior, yeah, we had a chief and a senior chief go through. And there was a lot of discussion of like, why are they here? Um, But at least it was within the corpsman rate. You're not changing your whole entire job field at that point in time, which, you know, I'm I'm surprised the Navy let you do it, which is, I mean, it's great that you did. I honestly think without Scotty Fusco, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. You, you always have to have that one advocate. And yep. yesterday's podcast, or not yesterday's, a couple of days ago with Joey, we saw where advocates fail without having an advocate. Yeah. Shit goes bad, which we'll get to with you because it happens to a lot of us. It, it, it does happen. So you finished dive school. I do. I finished dive school, um, go back to Connecticut, pack out the house, and we moved to Hawaii. That's right, because you dive school, you weren't guaranteed success. So yep. did you ever email that detailer and said, well, you're going to be waiting a long time for me to fail out because I just graduated? Honestly, I never gave it a second thought. <laughs> I did uh, I did reach out to Scotty and thank him again. Um, yep. I will thank that man and owe him many pints for many years. So you get to Hawaii. So we get to Hawaii. My first command as a diver is the naval uh is pearl harbor naval shipyard so as they tell us in the season for chiefs as you know this <laughs> you how am i trying to put this you have anchors on five minutes after you pin them and you're walking down the passageway most sailors have no idea that you've been a chief for five for only five minutes was it the same way with your uh, with your dive bubble as far as did um outside of the people who knew again you know the the dive community is a small community i won't say we know everybody but we know somebody that knows somebody um so getting out to my first dive locker um it wasn't very dissimilar to um how it works out worked on a sub you know um, one of my dive soups was a second class petty officer. He was a second class petty officer, first class diver. 
Um, so he'd been to dive school. It was, was a full diving supervisor, very talented. He led it. He led the dive team. Um, rank doesn't matter. Again, everybody's on a first name basis and it does when you're on the side, it doesn't matter if you're the, the master chief or the third class petty officer. If you're choking hose, you're choking hose and shooting the shit with the guy next to you. And you're listening to the dive supervisor. Um, as you know, as a, one of the big things that, that I had to teach some of my young, young divers later on was that as you know, it doesn't matter if the CO comes out there. If you've got divers in the water, those divers belong to you. The CO can't tell you what to do. Those divers are yours. So it's your decisions. Now it behooves you to listen to the CEO and take under advisement, but it was, uh, but ultimately it's your responsibility. Right. Because you're the, you're the one that, that that's your platform. Right. So it's less, it's less the rank structure and more the qualification standards. Okay. So what is the, um, you mentioned a warrant. So what is the officer uh, version of a diver then? We don't have one. So it's just a warrant. Um, we, like who, we, who was we your have, CEO is what I'm getting did, at. Um, an EOD officer now. Okay. We used to have, ba- like at, at, at the shipyard, you have a basic engineering diver. Um, so they're they're kind of like civil engineers or combat engineers, at officers that have, gone, that have been through dive school. Um, we have one admiral that has that has become a, uh, that was a basic engineering diver and gone up to admiral. But they've kind of, they haven't done away with that program, but it's a different path. Those are now oh, okay. more CB related and shipyard related. Um, divers, when we became a rate, uh, we fall under EOD. Oh, okay. So EOD and diving are married together. So now is that part of the exp- is that uh, I know they say EOD falls under special warfare, but is that is it still part of expeditionary command or is it it's, part of NSW? It is NSW. Okay. So now, now that we got that out of the way, you're yep. at Pearl Harbor, yep. which in itself, I would assume from anyone who likes to go underwater is probably a really interesting place to be historically. It's a great place to be a pirate. So let me ask you this. What was your most memorable, your most memorable, memorable, God damn tongue dive in Pearl Harbor? Um, doing a reenlistment for my chief on the deck of the Arizona right in front of the number one gun. Wow. What was it like being down there? I mean, in, in the presence of that, <laughs> that, that whole situation, could you feel anything? I mean, this is the woo woo me coming out. Um, you know, it, one is that to, there's not a lot of folks that have that privilege. It's a very distinct honor to, to be able to share such hollow ground with such amazing Patriots that, that came before us. Um, you know, I lived in Doris Miller housing. So every, everything in Pearl Harbor, um, military wise has history. And it's, uh, you know, if, and if you're into history, it's the, it's the most incredible place to be because there's so much going on and there's so much to learn and you can't, the four mile bike ride from my house to the base, there's probably 15 different placards and memorial things. Oh, wow. So, um, but yeah, it was, it was amazing. Um, while I was in Pearl Harbor, that was my most memorable dive. Definitely not the most memorable dive I've had, but that was my, the most memorable one in Pearl Harbor. So you finished your tour at Pearl Harbor. Yep. We're what, 2008, yep. I'm guessing? Yep. Then what happened? Um, 2008 was a really fun year. I'm going to back this up a little bit. 
All right. Um, I was sent TAD, me and myself and four other guys were sent from the shipyard, were sent TAD over, which is temporary assigned duty, over to uh, Mobile Diving Salvage Unit 2 to support a uh, Joint Pacific Accounting Command or JPAC mission to Palau. Um, JPAC was going to Palau to, as a, the third and final mission in an effort to recover remains from 11 MIAs from a World War II plane crash. Oh. So was that? Um... That was spring of, that was January through, we were out there for three months of so January to March of 2008. Um, we went to AD and, um, you know, we went, there was a, a full team from Mudsu, four of us from the shipyard, um, uh, EOD reservist that had been activated to support the mission, a army diver, and then two anthropologists. Did they bring anyone out from, I want to say, what was it, the defense? Damn it, I'm drawing a blank. The guys who do the DNA stuff. Um, well, that's JPAC. Oh, JPAC is the, the actual. Yeah. Joint okay. Pacific Accounting Command is one of those commands that does the, the does DNA. The DNA analysis. Okay. That's, that's um, what I was trying to think of. They sent uh, Chris Perez, came out with us. He was a uh, combat camera diver that come out. And then um, we had Doc Hollywood with us, which is uh, Andy Baldwin. He did the, he was on The Bachelor and was a diving medical officer. So he was our, our, our DMO for the. Oh, mission. so your doctor. Yeah, our, our actual, doctor. Your, your, yeah. Yeah. Our actual doctor, doctor. Doctor, doctor. Yeah. We, we, call him, we, we called him Doc Hollywood for, you know, he was the bachelor. It was fun. Was he on the bachelor yeah. prior to? Yes. Oh, okay. So that, that actually, that mission, um, GQ sent a writer out and they did, a, I think, a 12-page 12 12 spread on the mission. Was and, this and, your and, famous picture mission? Yeah, that's, that's one of my famous pictures, yeah. Yeah. Um, he ended up writing a book about it called Vanished. Oh, wow. Will, Will S. Heighton. So what was that like doing that a, was, remains recovery? I mean, obviously it's not the same as doing like a car accident and you have to go dive and pull somebody out 15 minutes. No, this, dead. this is, this is uh, going down and finding wreckage and then sifting through the coral and then, you know, basically putting things, putting wreckage into a basket, bringing the basket up. And then kind of shaking through it and looking for bone fragments or um, looking for teeth and looking for skull fragments, and looking for dog tags or pieces of uniform. So there was and, no guarantee that there was going to be uh, yeah. remains. But you this was this was the third. Time. This was the third mission on the site. And up to this point, they'd only found two of the 11. OK. And we found the remaining nine. Oh, during that mission. So that must have left a, as much as the Arizona must have left an impression in you, that must have left an even deeper impression. Absolutely. Um, there is, you know, there, there was no more admirable job or honor, honorable job that we could have done than that one right there. Um, that will, that is the highlight of my career. So did you guys ever find out where the remains returned to the next of kin? Where were, was their next of kin? So the, that, that, that famous picture of me with a flag, yeah, that flag was taken. We, we flew uh, for those that they haven't seen the picture. We took a flag um, down to the wreckage site. Um, my green green diver was a which standby diver or my my partner diver 
was a very well-skilled camera cameraman and phenomenal artist. Uh, he does a lot of videography stuff now and just, a, a, you know, he, he retired last year. Awesome, awesome people. So Mariana Lord was my, was my partner diver. And uh, he and I were down there and they, they get, I was granted the honor and privilege of taking the flag on a, on a pipe and waving the flag at the propeller which is the lifeblood of, the, of a plane. So we flew, we flew the flag at the plane. Um, they took some pictures and then we brought that flag up, folded it, and it has been passed to each of the families. Oh. So every, every family that had a crew member on that plane has had that flag in their custody at some point. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. So do you know what, where the flag is now? I don't. I would I would like to assume that maybe it's at some Navy facility somewhere. Uh, I uh, I hope it's with a family member that needs it most. Yeah, that would be great too. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking of the if the if the if the squadron was still around. I'm not sure. I'd I'd have to go back and check some of the files and paperwork, but I don't uh, I don't remember if it is or not. Because that mm-hmm. was one of the they were coming off of Peleliu, flying over Palau, heading towards Japan. I, what do you know what type of what was it was it a bomber or it was it was uh so that it actually had gone down under friendly uh premises one of the planes above it in formation had abs- accidentally one of the bombs had, had wiggled loose and dropped and broke the wing Jeez. so they went down and there so that's one of the reasons why this took three mission sets is the wreckage was spread over three different reefs that makes sense so yeah. You have this great time, uh, and I'm sorry if great time's not the right word, but you have this great experience in yeah. Hawaii. So we have the great experience in Hawaii. I come back from Palau in spring and um, accept orders to Naval Special Warfare Unit 3, Det Bahrain. Uh, it's an unaccompanied tour, supposed to be 10 months. So um, one of the things that we had negotiated because Diver had become a rate, and now that I'm a, I'm a first-class petty officer, upper chief, a second-class diver, I can't make chief because no second-class diver is going to become chief without having first-class diver pin first. And you so have to have... The, explain the difference. Um, second-class diver is your worker. He's the guy in the water or she's the girl in the water because we have women divers as well. I was going to ask that next. Yep. Um, so the, the second-class diver is your, your worker. They're the, they're the puppet on the, on the end of the rope. They're, they're the ones that are down there turning wrenches. Or, now, is, that, is that what you were when you came out of dive school, a second yep. class? Okay. I was. I was a second class diver, first class petty officer coming out of dive school, um, able to cut, braze, weld, um, do basic salvage and underwater ships husbandry and some basic demolition work. So, you know, you got to blow some stuff up too. Yay. Yay. Boom. I like, I like things that go boom. <laughs> um, so, so you negotiate, I'm assuming you know, you negotiate in dive soup somewhere in there. I, I do. So I, I, they, they, you know, nobody wants to go to Bahrain, especially on a 10 month on a company tour. Ooh, that's a, so I, that's uh, some good, that's some good per diem, but ow. Yeah. So I, I say, Hey, I'll, I'll take this. If you can give me first class dive school afterwards. And they say, we'll give you this in first class dive school. If you'll go to NEDU afterwards. So I said, okay, any to use the Navy experimental dive unit. Yeah, that's um, I was trying to do the I was trying to do the the the, the thing in my head. 
it, it's where you go to be a human test subject. So you go do that. We've had some conversations about that, which will lead into something in a little bit, but yeah. well, we'll, we'll get there later. <laughs> yeah. Backing up. I, uh, so I, you know, I, I negotiate these orders to, to go to Bahrain for 10 months in order to get first class divers. So, cause I have to have first class diver, which is first class divers, your diving supervisors. They're the men and women that are holding watches, directing traffic, and really the, have the weight of the, the diving operation on their shoulders. So do they get, did they get wet much? Um, not nearly as much as anybody would like to. Okay. The, un unfortunately, the further up the, the food chain you go, the less you get to get in the water. Okay. That's what I was kind of curious about. Yeah. Um, every, every diver is required to dive. Every diver has a, a minimum number of dives they have to do um, every, every few months. So every diver does dive. And so if you're the, if you're the warrant or you're the master diver and you're in the water, the dive soup literally is telling you what you're supposed to do. Right. So that's, and that's why, again, rank doesn't matter as much on the dive side. So before we jump ahead, because I probably should have asked this early on, um, coming from my world of the FMF Corman and what we do alongside the Marines, and I'm assuming with... 90% of combat arms guys, before you walk out the door, you have a mission, you have a plan, you have your objectives and everything. Is that, are you working almost like in a, like in a mission planning combat type yeah. role where it's like you have hard hits that you have to be at these waypoints at this time? Every, every job has set points. Every job has, has certain, you know, if you're if you're doing underwater husbandry, you're usually working out of a, out of a package. You've got a, a file that says that you, you're going to do this step, and after this is done, you're going to go here. You know, um, so there's there's quality assurance packages that that you work out of. For salvage, we have checkpoints. We have you know, we have our hard and fast you know depth to depth versus time ratios that we have to maintain. Your tables. Yep. So, you know, we have those. So with those, we have, you know, accountability for what tools we take in, whatever goes in has to come out. Um, we have, you know, there's, there's always a check. There's always a plan and there's often dry dives before we get to the wet dives. Yay. Yay. So now you get over to this, to this Guinea pig lab, which is what I'll call it. Well, before that, so I did, uh, I did, I was supposed to do 10 months in Bahrain. Um, the Navy ran out of money for travel because this was 2008, 2000, 2009. Oh, okay. Thanks for clarifying that. Cause I thought you were saying because they gave you dive soup, they were pulling your Bahrain orders and putting you at any. Nope. Okay. Nope. I actually, I, I went out to Bahrain, um, ended up being stationed in Bahrain for 14 months in Bahrain for four months. Um, cause I, so I got there in July of 2008. Um, you have to be at command for 45 days before you can go T80 anywhere. And on my 45th day after signing the lease for my villa and accepting my household goods without even unpacking them, um, I went T80 to uh, Baghdad. With that unit? With, uh, from NSW unit three, I went with a SEAL sniper, Vinny, and a CV... What was her, what was her grade? I want to say she was an equipment operator to go uh, retrieve some some 1152 Humvees, so tactical ground mobility assets. Uh, we were going to the the job set, the mission set was to um, 
from Baghdad to Basra, all the fobs with that had assets due. We had 11, 11 Humvees that we were supposed to pull out of there into Baghdad, flying from Baghdad to Al-Assad. Uh, um, once we got to Al-Assad, we were going to pull from Ruwa, Ratwa, Korean Village, all the, all the fobs west of Al-Assad, bring everything in, identify. So this is we were starting to draw down then, this was, theoretically. Uh, it was before the drawdown, so this was a this was a refit. Oh, this, oh okay. We we're gonna we we're we we're trading out. Oh, okay, trading out Humvees. Oh, well, just, just okay. I'm sorry, I, I lost you there because I thought you were talking about shutting down these fobs. Not nope. no, 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 no. This wasn't. We, we were shut, we were shutting down. Um, at that oh, time, so that's where the magical Humvees came from. That's where the yeah yeah. So SEAL SEAL Team Ten was uh, from Baghdad East, and SEAL Team five when i first got there i guess it was eight and five and was later ten and seven um, but five had al-assad west and then um seven eight had from baghdad east so i i know quite a few corpsmen that have been with teams not yep. necessarily nsw as a whole but with um with teams so like seal team 17 seal team 18 are the reserve ones and then if they deploy, they do have to screen to go yep. to be, even if they're not, obviously the corpsmen in that capacity are support corpsmen. They're back at the fobs or back at, uh, they're not kicking in doors unless they've really proven themselves in some weird way, which is rare. Yeah. But so did you have to screen to go to NSW? No. Um, there's, there's some backstory there. I had previously screened to go to projects. Okay which we won't discuss. Right. <laughs> so, so prior, prior to taking orders, I was, before I took accepted orders to Bahrain, I had been waiting for orders to projects, waiting for an opening. And I was down to the last month where the detailer said, either you're going to pick orders or I'm going to pick them for you. Yeah. Because we were down to that point where I, I couldn't wait any longer. So in retrospect, are you glad you didn't go to projects? Um, it's a mixed bag, to be honest. I, if, if it's the same projects I'm thinking of, um, I've it, heard many things from guys who were not frogs that depending just on what's, what was going on, you were either loved or hated. You know, I, I felt that way at NSW. <laughs> I mean, uh, to, uh, no names mentioned here, a mentor of mine who I think he got, I think he picked up Master Chief. His last command was there. Yeah. And he was a special reconnaissance corpsman. So he had the, all the ticks. He yeah. went out and played with them when they played. But there were many times when they were like, hey, buddy, uh, we just, you know, just hit a target. Thanks for saving this guy's life. But you need to get out of this team room because frogs need to talk. And he's like, I literally just did everything you did. I have, I was never a SEAL. I never did SEAL work. I was a Navy diver doing some things that Navy divers don't normally do. Yeah. But it, but it's one of those things where you, Marines would never tell one of us to, would, would never tell me to leave a room because I'm not a Marine. Um, to me, I just of, found it weird. Most of the time I was in Afghanistan, I looked more like a contractor than a sailor. Um, I learned very early on not to wear a rank insignia. I did wear a dive helmet because I was a second class diver. I did never at any time did I 
try to pass myself as a seal. Um, I often corrected guys. Uh, we went, we did some stuff with the Australians with their with their tactical ability folks, and uh, one of their guys said, "Oh, oh, you're you're a frogman." I'm like, "No, no, no, no. I'm a, I'm a diver. I am not one of those guys. I'm Which, not that special." Practically, you're more of a true frogman than than That's, because um, divers are. Never mind. Yeah, Vinny and I had a long conversation about that because he heard me make that statement once. He's like, "Dude, don't be confused. You're a diver. You're a frogman too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just a different type of frogman. Just a different type." So you you do these you do the, these things with naval special warfare SEAL teams for those who are trying who haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. Um, what was that I, like? Being someone who everything up until that point had been water based, whether it was subs or just diving and now all of a sudden you're there it's funny if you if you remember you know when we first started talking about little jewels before i became you know sailor jewels i said that i had, I had driven trash and i had driven dairy so i had i had my cdl and when i checked into bahrain you know you kind of go through these this question and answer hey what you know what where have you been you know it's it's that the, you're the new guy let's see what skill sets you have that we can utilize yeah basically so what are you bringing to the table SEALs are very good at isolating skill sets and saying, hey, I could use you over here. Um, so I was sitting down with Ken Bullahan was my warrant and Vinny was my, um, he was our department chief for the training department. And I was, my job was supposed to be maintain the, the Mark 25s, which are the oxygen rebreathers that SEALs use and main, you know, the maintenance guy and, yeah. and coordinate qualification dives because every diver, doesn't matter if you're EOD SEAL or diver every diver has to have so many dives every quarter so that was supposed to be my job i went to work for the training bed um as we're shoot as we're discussing talking story um it comes out that i had my cdl and i could drive and Vinny's like hey do you think you could drive a humvee i said i've driven a submarine i can i can absolutely drive a humvee <laughs> you know that's not, not, not a complicated process <laughs> and uh so he's like, he's like, hey, great. Would you mind helping me on this mission set? So we, like I said, August, we fly out of Bahrain. Um, you can't fly from Bahrain to Kuwait or to Iraq. You have to go through Kuwait. So we take a commercial flight, fly into Kuwait International. Some guys, some cool guys pick us up. We drive, go from there down to a holding facility and a sandstorm blows in. We get stuck. We're supposed to be in Kuwait for 48 hours. We get stuck there for a week and a half. So our, we're behind before we even go before we even, before we even launch. Right. So we're stuck in Kuwait. You guys sandstormed in Vinny talks to ops. We've had some conversations. Um, and he asks, he's like, Hey, I'm going to take, do you, how do you feel if I take Maria and we go to Al Assad and we start pulling in all the assets from West and I send you to Baghdad and we'll, you, you pull in all the assets from East and then we'll meet in Al Assad. I'm like, um, okay, so we run through some we run through some walkthroughs. We go through what's supposed to be in an ancillary gear box. We go through what I'm looking for. We go through all the hum, everything that's supposed to be with a Humvee and its supply box, right? And we go through what assets are supposed to be from where, and who my points of contact are, and all that stuff. So we we divide and conquer, and I fly out two days before he does. I go to because just coordinating birds to get to where you need to be. Um, they flew straight to Al Assad, and I flew straight to Baghdad. Okay. Um, so I, I get into Baghdad and the assets that were supposed to be there weren't there. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Weird. So start making phone calls, start sending emails, start coordinating. 
and they're not going to be there for like a week. So I've never been one to sit with my thumb in my rear. So I say, okay, I'm here. What can I do? What do you need help with? Um, they're like, can you drive a bus? I can absolutely drive a bus. So I would drive the bus that took the, the door kickers and the pipe hitters to the helicopter. And then I would take the door kickers and pipe hitters and their guest back from the helicopter. <laughs> so wait, it's not like Hollywood where they're laying in the hangars and no. get a mission brief at the hangar and then they run out to the helicopters that are 50 feet away? Not so much, no. No, no that's not, not, not really how it happens. Sun, sun goes down, you take people to helicopters. Sun comes up, you bring people back. <laughs> Sometimes it at least, at least you get a full night's sleep. No, <laughs> I think I think on I think three nights, three hours was the maximum sleep I got the whole time I was in Baghdad. Really? Yeah. Was that just because of incoming, or was that just because of work? Um. So I would do my job during the day, and then I would do the support jobs at night. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, well, I mean we. 06 we had incoming that was about the only thing that actually ironically it was it was hardly the incoming that kept us up it was the outgoing yeah. uh, the uh my my big awakening in baghdad is that i had a had made friends with a dog handler while i was there he was a ma that had you know he was assigned to the same group but he did the he did the security stuff um i'd been there assets had just started showing up so i'd been there for about a week and uh we had midrats together, which is that, that midnight meal um, from 11 to midnight. It's called midrats. So, and I was going to go crash for three hours before I had to go pick people up. And I woke up about an hour and a half into it to him hitting an IED outside the wall because we were about 15 feet from the wall. Damn. I've been saying damn a lot, but damn. <laughs> damn. So, so wait, was, how, did he, how did he hit an IED outside the I, wall? I don't know. Or did the IED debt and he was, wait, was he outside the wall or inside? Yeah, he was wall? outside the wall. Oh, oh okay. Okay. He was, okay. he was doing a sweep. So oh, oh, okay. He was doing the, um, he was doing, he was, he was doing his job. Okay. Oh, okay. I thought you meant something completely different. Nope. So you leave, you, you're doing this. Yep. I, know, I know we're on a little bit of a, a time crunch. Oh, you're fine. That was, uh, Laura was messaging, okay. telling me what she wants for dinner. <laughs> okay. So um, you're out there. In Baghdad, yep. do you guys leave? Do you yourself at that point in time leave the wire? I did not leave the wire in Baghdad. I didn't start leaving the wire until after I went to Al Assad the second time. Okay. Um, so here so we, you are. I, I collect the I collect all the my assets. We get them on planes. Um, there really isn't time to process anything, so um, we get everything to. Uh, Al Assad, we start making the swap around, and then we basically caravan from Al Assad to Arif John, Kuwait, um, all these assets, these Humvees, to to get them down to the reset facility. Wow. Okay. So, that's that's a nice little drive to. A... Yeah, it, it's a fun little convoy. <laughs> I'm surprised that they used you guys to do that. Um, Dude, I'm expendable. <laughs> Not just that you're expendable, but I mean, let's talk about ex uh, ways. Not just you, but the the type of pe the type of people that they use to do that. Yeah, you can hire local national contractors to get them across the border. There was just, remember whose remember whose Humvees we were using. 
ours. I, theirs aren't that much different than everyone else's. I've seen them. They're not that much different, but they are different. There's True. enough there that we there were some concerns as far as they didn't at that time they they the juice wasn't worth the squeeze. Okay. Now had a daisy chain of one five five taken out half the convoy, there would have been a whole different um, yeah conversation about that. Yeah. That being said, so what I was trying to ask you before this, but it applies to this directly. So your Navy diver, first class McManus, you've lost someone that you got close to in Baghdad. Yep. You're gearing up to go on this little convoy. Didn't even think about it. Nothing. Okay. That's, that's just that. That's why I kind of threw that caveat in there that there just wasn't enough time to process. It's one of those things that it happened. Uh, you move forward and okay. you keep moving forward. So, you, well, I wasn't even talking about that, but I was talking about, did you have any fear at all leaving leaving the no. wire? Okay. So you guys get to what, Jordan? Uh, Eric John, Kuwait. Kuwait. So you guys get to Kuwait. Oh, wow. I was thinking you said Jordan. So that's an even longer drive. AJ. So you get down there. Then what happens? Uh, we, we drop the vehicles off at the reset facility. Um, we call one of our drivers to pick us up. We go back, do a debrief and download. Um, we left all of our ammunition in Kuwait. Uh, we'd leave our weapons in Kuwait. So, and then, back to... so then we, so I went back to Bahrain and, um, you know, did what you do in Bahrain. Collect a whole bunch of, uh, per diem. Yeah. Collect, so, yeah so you... Like a whole bunch of per diem. <laughs> so you said you had what, uh, 14, 14 months there on a nine month. Um, I, I, well, I was supposed to be there for I was supposed to be there for ten because okay. the Navy lost lost funding, extended to fourteen months, and I was only in Bahrain for four months. So, where did you go? How long were you in Bahrain for that return? After so, you said you got there, you just signed your lease, yep. went into Iraq. Now you're uh, back. Vinny was Vinny was really happy. Uh, apparently, the debrief went well. They came back, so that would have been October. September came back, September, October timeframe and came in and said, Hey, we want you to take over tactical ground mobility. Ken is transferring to Guam. So Vinny's going to take over uh, the air side. So I want you to go back to Al Assad. And then I want you to go through uh, sevens coming into rip, uh, relieve in place five and tens coming into rip to relieve eight. So I want you to go around as they do the rip and go over routes and go over all the gear, get with their CVs, make sure all the mechanical stuff that, so their CVs know what they've got. Let us know what you, what, what we need. And then, uh, so I, I went to, to my dive chief and said, Hey, they want to pull me out of training and, and put me over here. He's like, as long, he's like, you're the training LPO. As long as you can still be the LPO and you can take care of 3M, I don't care what you do. So, um, I, I took over the tactical ground mobility for what turned into Kuwait, Iraq and Afghanistan for the SEAL teams. What, as far as what they had to have, what assets they needed. And that was the same time that we started, um, October, November timeframe. We started fielding the RG 33 MRAPs, which are the, 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 yeah, the, the yeah. big ugly things. Yep. So, now that that's done, I'm assuming you didn't run any missions at that point in time. I, I did. I never at any time ever ran a mission. Okay. My so, job was merely support and 
to I, I help I help stand security occasionally. Um, you know, I would run through. I, I was I did what I was told to do when I was told to do it. Oh, good, good ND one. So there's, there's a fair amount of free thinking in there too. <laughs> so what happens? So at the end of this 14 months, you, I am assuming, come back to where? Where were you living? Where was Laura at at this point? In time? So I had, uh, I actually, I, I, I got very fortunate. I was able to move Laura and the boys from Hawaii because we knew we were going to come to any of the EU here in Florida. I moved them down to Rockledge, Florida because Orlando is an international airport. I figured I could get in and out of there easy enough. Um, I came back, I think I was fortunate enough. I came back four or five times over that whole span. Oh, okay. um, sometimes just for a weekend um, because it just worked out. Like I, I was, I was in, Haditha got a phone call from my ops and they wanted me in San Diego in three days at a war com at a war. They want me to go to war com for a TGM conference. Okay. Well, because I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it makes sense, but it's like, yeah, here's three days, get out of country. And yeah. So, go. and I did, oh. I, uh, we had, <laughs> we had just finagled a, helicopter drop outside of Haditha because we were out in Rawa. It was myself and my comms guy. Um, so we were out in Rawa. Helicopters can't land at Haditha Dam because, you know, somebody once upon a time pushed a helicopter over the dam. So that's kind of counter, counterproductive. So it, uh, I bribed some Marines to drop us off. We'll, uh, that, that's a private conversation later on. <laughs> But they uh, they dropped a rope for us. We did a fast rope insertion about two kilometers, two or three kilometers outside of Haditha Dam. Um, actually, walked up the Marine side first, and they're like, "Hey, uh, you guys must be NSW. You want to go about half a kilometer that way?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we, you know, we get down to get down to there and check in. That's when I checked in with my office. He's like, "Yeah, I want you. I need you uh, here in like three days." So I got pulled out of uh, got pulled out of Iraq. Went to San Diego and was able to negotiate like a three-day basket leave to stop by Orlando on the way for flights, flight purposes. And uh, yeah, so I got to, got to see my family when I came in, came back from that. Um, so then you go to NEDU. I do. And what was the human guinea pig experience like? And I well, said that jokingly, obviously. Yeah. That's, you're, you're not too far off. <laughs> um, I had actually, I had left, I'd left Bahrain in September, October, October of 09 and reported to the dive school because I had, I had to go to first class dive school in route, um, classed up in. Oh, so you were still a second class diver. Yeah. Okay. So I was still a second class diver when I left Bahrain because you have to have two, you have to have two commands before you can go to first class dive school. Oh, okay. The so Bahrain was my second command, and that's why that's why I did the short tour was so I could try to get back on target. So uh, this was 2000, 2009. I went to first class dive school, graduated in February of ten, and uh, before graduation, Bill Dodd called me and said, "Hey, you were a submariner, right?" I'm like, yeah. He's like, "You were a machinist, baby, right?" I'm like, yeah. He's like, "What's your clearance?" And I let him know what my clearance was, and He's like, hey, I want to pull you over to SATFADS. I'm like, what's SATFADS? He's like, it's the, it's the Navy's new flyaway saturation system. How do you feel about being a saturation diver? Mm -hmm. 
hell yeah, let's go. Send me. I'll go. <laughs> Which was kind of my mantra anyway. Um, at this point, I'm in, you know, I just left NSW, so I'm in the best shape I've ever been in. Um, yeah, I'm like 215 pounds, 6'3", and maybe 11% body fat. Um, I, was, I, had, I had left NSW very well, in very good shape. <laughs> very good shape, apparently. Yeah. So was that part of the, what was it? Fly and he, fat? And sat fads? Sat fads was supposed to become the the seaside of NEDU because any NEDU is a saturation command as it is. Okay. So that, you know, they do, they, they were any, uh, NEDU and Duke university were really the forefathers of all saturation diving commercial or otherwise. And will you explain to everyone what saturation diving is? So sa saturation diving is um, best way I can put it is we can take somebody to a thousand feet of seawater put them to work at a thousand feet of seawater, use a diving bell as an elevator so that they can stay pressurized to that same depth. Um, and for those that don't dive, um, every 33 feet of depth is classified as an atmosphere. An atmosphere is 14.7 pounds per square inch of pressure pressing against you. So at, at ground level, at sea level, theoretically there's 14.7 pounds per square inch of pressure pressing against you. At 33 feet, that's been doubled to 28 pounds or 29 pounds. For every additional 33 feet you go down is an additional 14.7 pounds per square inch. So at a thousand feet, theoretically, there's 300 pounds of pressure pushing against your body. Ouch. You don't feel it. You really don't. I mean, it, it pushes all the liquid out of your joints. Um, we like to let guys soak when they get that deep for at least 24 hours. So the fluid, because fluid doesn't compress. So, and you could go like this and everything cracks. Um, nitrogen starts to become toxic to the body at about 99 feet. Uh, oxygen can start becoming toxic to the body at about 60 feet. So we wanna maintain a surface equivalent value of 21% oxygen, right? Cause we can, the average human can breathe as low as 16% and just feel a little bit lightheaded. You get to about 15%, a large portion of the population will pass out you get to 14%, just about everybody passes out because there's just not enough oxygen to maintain consciousness. And it's exact, from my skydiving days, it's exact opposite going up. So right. there's yep. still the same amount of concentrate of oxygen at 50,000 feet. It's just more dispersed. More dispersed. Yeah, so where as we, you guys are compressing it. Right. So to, to prevent nitrogen narcosis, what we'll do is we use helium because helium and nitrogen are both inert gases. Um, the only problem with helium is it has some negative thermal properties, so it makes you cold from the inside out. So we'll we'll press somebody down to a set depth, less than 50 feet, transfer to helium, press it down to heat on press them down to let's say a thousand feet, right? But we'll maintain a surface equivalent value of 21%. Now, a surface equivalent value of 21% oxygen at a thousand feet is like 2.3%. Oh, wow. Or 2.3 parts per million. So that's really not that, you really don't need that much oxygen when you're way down there. Yeah. Well, again, it's, you know, you get into Charles and Gay-Lussac, you get into some of the gas laws, um, Henry's law of absorption. There's, you know, some, some rather significant big brain people that came up with this stuff. I was always told that the Navy basically set the standard for all diving worldwide in some weird way. 
we I did through the, through the 60s and 70s absolutely yeah and and like i said we did some stuff with duke university um duke university actually pressed guys down to 2250 feet of seawater um and that's kind of the threshold that's the maximum and you'll get at least roughly half of the guys will come back from that so let me ask you this. So when you're down there, are you in one of those men of honor type suits or are you? Same helmet. It's a, well, it's, it's a slightly different helmet. Cause what we do is we actually, um, helium is mean... expensive. So we reclaim the gas. So we use, uh, some, some brilliant Scots figured out how to over Dybex, um, figured out how to make a, what they call it an ultra jewel, which oh, worked. It's kind of that named after you. Almost, but no. <laughs> um, Divex came up with some great saturation technology um, in the, gosh, they came up with that in the 70s and 80s, late 70s, early 80s. Um, we did use, original sat divers did use the Mark V. There is a mixed gas Mark V dive, Mark dive helmet. Um, oh, no. But, what I, was, I guess what I was getting at was uh, more of the suit. I mean, you're not wearing just your normal billabong wetsuit. Actually, that's, uh, I, I prefer O'Neill's personally, but yeah. Oh, really? So you're not yeah. in that full costume? Nope. Um, I used, so my, my deepest depth is 600 feet. And when I did 600 feet, we were in 50, 52 degrees of water and using rebreathers. Um, so the, the uh, a similar low mu rebreather dive rig that we would use for EOD. Uh, we had reconfigured to be able to use at 600 feet. So with that, I mean, could you uh, uh, take away the cold, but yeah. can you have exposed skin at that depth? You, you can. I mean, it's going to obviously be cold. It's not advisable. <laughs> but I mean, so it's not like you have to have this spacesuit type exterior layer um, keeping you pressurized or something. I, I did a dive. I did a dive in the ocean simulation facility, the OSF, which is one of the, the, the big tank that they use at, at NEDU because we were doing some workup dives and uh, one of the reasons we it's good to let guys soak for 24 hours when you press to 600 feet the wetsuit goes from maybe this thick to like this thick it goes to paper thin so you oh. have to wait for the for the rubbers in the for the wetsuit to reabsorb the gas and re-expand so my first dive was supposed to be a two-hour dive and I made it 45 minutes I think 45 minutes or an hour before I was so hypothermic, I could barely move. Wow. Okay. So you are a psychopath. Sociopath? A little bit of A, a little bit of B, same thing. <laughs> um, so you do your time there, and then what happens after you leave NEDU? Because I know that there's probably a lot of stuff that's way over everyone's head and yeah. gets really technical. Um, well, what, one of the big things that happens while I'm at any of you and I'm working for the flyaway saturation system, um, in, the, in the meantime, so I'm, I'm a human test subject for some oxygen studies. Um, I do some saturation dives. I am part of the team for the uh, certification of the flyaway saturation system. I was supposed to be on the inside team as the team lead, but I got stung by a stingray in my left knee. So it took me off the dive. So was this like the uh, Steve Irwin deadly stingray type deal, or is this something? This is, this is uh, July of 2012. No, because I made chief in 12. Uh, this was July of 2011. 
Um, I got stung by a stingray in my in the patellar tendon. The tip of the bar broke off in the tendon um, and stayed there for like four months because we didn't catch it on the initial x-rays. Uh, I had gone over to Mayport, Jacksonville, where you and I had met. Right. I was over there for the Navy's Drug and Alcohol Program Administrator School, the DAPA school. Um, and was had gone out surfing for my morning PT and went to do a cutback and felt a pop. And what that pop was, was I created a 70% tear of the patellar tendon from the inside out. Mm. Um, so when I came back from school, cause I finished up school and came back and went to my docs and said, Hey, this hurts. And I can't put a lot of weight on it. It's not working right. Um, we went and did an MRI and we found the, found the tear and we did surgery. And when they, when they did the surgery, in October of that year, of 2011, right? Yeah. Yeah. Had to think, sorry. When they did surgery in October of 11, they found the, uh, found the barb still in my knee. How did and they miss it on the MRI? What's that? How did they miss it on the MRI? Well, the, initially, we just did an x-ray. We didn't do an MRI the first time around. When I right. first got no, but when they did do the MRI before the surgery, they, they, they weren't sure if it was because that's a similar material. Oh, so it's a, it's an organic. So they probably just thought yep. you were half stingray. Yeah. Which would make so, sense. Yeah. Which I, I really, I really wish doc would have put it because I would love to have that barb. That's just yeah. one of those, you know, stupid things. No, it would have um, been cool. It would have been a nice little totem. But the, uh, because that had sat in there and basically necrotized the tissue for four months, um, we sewed it up and everything went in. We ended up going back in, in December, um, or in November rather to do a debridement because as soon as we went from a zero degree to a 15 degree, everything came open. The stitches literally fell out of my knee. Um, because the, the, there was so much infection and just grossness that the skin wouldn't heal. It just became mush. Like you could move it with a butter knife and pull skin off from like, the from the incision point wow from, from the stingray so we did that in november uh december we went through the same situation so like early january right after right after new year's we went in again um did another derailment this time we you know they put a hole in the side did a, did a drain tube and we did 20 hyperbaric oxygen treatments for non-healing wound and by february it finally closed so four and a half months. Yep. Give or take. Four and a half months. Three surgeries later, it finally closed up. Uh, we did cert dives for the flyway system that spring, and then uh, 2012 is when I made chief. So you make chief in 2012. Congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Long overdue. You know <laughs> what? <laughs> so how many years in at this point? Um, that was. See, I came in in '97, so that was 10 years. 10 years. Okay. So you were, no, you were on... it was 15. Right. Wait, 97 carry five. Yeah. yeah. 15, 15, 15 years. So a little bit behind the power curve, but you had also changed rates as a first class. So yeah, probably, yeah, kinda... probably pretty close to a diver, a, a E1 coming in as a diver. Yeah. I was, I was, I was on the right progression for a diver who had converted at E5. <laughs> yeah so yeah. you made it you're doing good you leave um 
I, I leave NEDU and go down to Gitmo to run my own locker. So what happens after that? After Gitmo? After Gitmo. Um, well, we, I, I take my family with me. We spent three years down in Gitmo. I have my own locker down there. Um, I'm the command diving officer because we don't have a master driver. We don't have a warrant. So this is one of the, the few commands that doesn't have a master driver or a warrant officer to actually run the run the locker. Um, it's it, the, the the chief has it. So you're There's you're one. you're the you you are the sole point of yep. anything that has to do with dive. Yep. And um, so we do you know down there we did some light salvage we did some husbandry um, we did some work for some three letter organizations. Um, we do, we work with EOD cause there's a, you know, there used to be a bombing range down there. So there's a lot of old UXO or training UXO. Uh, so we do a lot of demolition work, which is unexploded ordinance for people wondering, sorry, <laughs> it's all good. So, um, did you guys ever TAD over to, uh, what is it? Rosie roads, Roosevelt roads, or that little Island that's off Puerto Rico. Yeah. I, I never, we never TAD out of, out of there to go down to Rosie roads or go down to Puerto Rico. Um, did some work down and did we went down to Curacao. We went down to Jamaica over to Jamaica. Um, but most of our work was right there in Gitmo. I had a small I really had just a small locker where I had one corpsman that worked for me as a DMT and then um four of the divers. We got we struggled to make enough to be able to run a service supply side. Wow. So your time there, you met some people I know, um yeah. had some some of the reservists that work with me when I was at the NOSC doing that shit. Yep. So you mentioned Afghanistan. Where did Afghanistan come into the picture um, a while back? When I was, Afghanistan came in when I was with NSW. Oh, okay. Okay. So it wasn't, you went back. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I never went back. Um, 07 or 08, 09 was my only time in, in theater. So, um, most of 08 was Iraq, about November, December timeframe, after I came back from the TGM conference. Um, and after seven had come in and relieved five, we divested seven and moved a platoon or two and stood up what's called task, uh, task unit trident. And um, God, where did we stand them up? That was Kandahar. Okay. Okay. So I, I left, I got pulled out again. I got pulled out of, I was in Iraq. I got pulled out of Iraq and went to Afghanistan, went up to Bagram, um, was up in Bagram for most of a, a very large part of December, January timeframe. Um, right. Yeah. I forget because it, it all blends That's together. Okay. Um, but yeah, so most of Oh nine, for me, it was Afghanistan. 08, most of 08 was Iraq. Most of 09 was Afghanistan. All right. That that makes more sense now. And my stupid computer freezes, but I'm on it. So um, now 2015, Chief yep. McManus, you're yep. done with your time at um, yep. Gitmo? I was, I was at NADU from 12 or from 10, from 10 to 13. So 2013 to 2000. 2013 to 2016, I was in Cuba. In 2016, I took a instructor billet at the EOD school. 
Which brings us to where you're at right now, living wise. Yes. Yep. That brings me back to Florida. So I am, I'm located halfway between the EOD school and the dive school. Which is in the panhandle. Yep. Santa, Santa Rosa Beach, Florida, which is the, the panhandle. Which is also why you have all that mosquito netting behind you. That's exactly why I'm in a screened room. <laughs> to keep the uh, state bird of Florida away from you. Uh, it's more for in the springtime to keep the yellow flies out. So I don't even want to know what the hell the yellow flies are, but okay. Yeah, you, it's bad. So let's go into a little bit on the Navy career still. Right. But if I'm doing my math right, that was your last command. That was. Where you're, where you're at right now. And yeah. things had dramatically changed at that point in time. Well, so we're, we're going to back up a little bit. In 2014, I was training for an Ironman and ran a half marathon with a uh, Army deep sea diver, Lieutenant, great, or I guess they're captains there, but um, awesome, awesome guy, Pete Dobler. Um, he later took my, my, my triathlon bike and I got to watch him race it in the Ironman here in Florida. Um, but we were running a half marathon because we were both training for an Ironman. And at mile 12-ish, I felt some significant pain in that left knee where I'd had surgery before. And uh, we ended up doing surgery again in 2015, 2016, and 2017 on that left knee. And so that really affected your ability to continue at that point in time. It did. Um, Andrews Institute did a great job. They did the last surgery on that left knee in july of 2017 and by december they deemed that knee non-repairable and i was i had just hit 20 years of service that august of uh, 17 of oh, 17 so the uh navy captain that was in charge over in pensacola of uh orthopedics say that, that i had two choices i could either put in my papers and pick my retirement date or be told by bumed when to retire but that my service was done. So, okay, we're gonna touch on two things that kind of diverge, but merge. So, and we ran into this issue with Joey. Joey didn't have the luxury of going through a med board because no one gave him that option. Yeah. And he got out, I think at like eight years. Mm -hmm. And you guys have a little bit of a similar parallel thing. When, when the Navy has this thing when you're injured, Things don't quite, no. what's, the word I'm, what's the word I'm looking for? Things get a little weird, no matter what rank you are. Yeah. Um, I saw it as a chief. Uh, you saw it as a chief. Joey saw it as an HM2. Nope. So let's touch on this. I know it's probably, I'm not trying to draw up shit against the Navy because, you know, I have, I, I am Navy all the way. Oh, yeah. And I think these conversations need to be had at all ranks because hopefully we can try to fix this fuck up. But so you, you are doing your best. You are probably one of the hardest workers I knew or you no. Know, I, I think my last command would argue that. Right. So <laughs> when the, when the medical appointments get in the way of you doing shit that you're theoretically overqualified to do, and you're August. being told that you need to go to these medical appointments. August of August of 18, my uh, HMC senior chief buddy of mine, um, never trust even number chief, exactly. um, <laughs> a senior chief Corman buddy of mine comes down and says, Hey, really? You got all these medical appointments. I know Matt, Matt was my master diver. 
you know, really needs you here, it's going to be advantageous, the best for you and for the command if we put you on limited. And at this time, I'm still in recovery. I'm still, you know, I'm a month out of surgery. I'm, you know, still on crutches, having some complications. And uh, so I'm like, all right, you know, that, that makes sense. Let's go on limb do. So let, let, let's explain this real quick. So in the military, um, whether it's any branch of service, you have two different medical, cat, uh, medical, what sort of medical restriction categories. Yep. In the Navy, we call it light, ju- light duty. In the Army, it's called profile. Marines follow us. I don't know what the Air Force has. No one really cares about the Air Force anyways. Um, that being said, so that is something where, hey, I sprained my ankle. I'm on light duty. I can't run for the next six weeks. It's your and, time and, to recover. An, ex, an, an expectation of high probability of full recovery to go back sure. to 100%. Yep. Limited duty means you are going to need more advanced medical care with a bunch of appointments and a bunch of other things going on that is going to prevent you from doing your job, not just your PT. And we need to theoretically accommodate your medical care over your primary duty. Yep. And I really wish someone would explain that to commanding officers, CMCs and Sergeant Majors, because oh. that's what the man med, the manual of medicine for the Navy basically states. <laughs> so as you go on limb do, what happens to a chief petty officer that goes on limb do? nothing good exactly so it's uh you know to in defense of my command their perspective was he's just hit 20 years he's trying to pad his retirement and go home is that that was their perspective they didn't uh they didn't realize what was going on and i wasn't vocalizing it to the right person um and i I say that because what you know Anybody that's been operational and has not taken the time to slow down and process, what happens when you have to stop, when, when your whole world stops and you have time to think? Well, I look at it like this. Our, our, our bodies, minds, whatever, from the minute that people like you and I hit the ground yeah. is going. And yeah. we pick up bumps and bruises along the way. and We don't process it. But the minute that we're told to stop, that whole chain reaction of everything else catches up and you're suddenly like, I am 90 years old in a walker yeah. hurting so bad. So for you, yep. you're, you start to get some pushback. They, they have these issues. Oh yeah. But, there, there, there was a lot of pushback. Um, my, I was, I was the leading chief for the dive locker and I worked for a master diver and you know, there's, there's no, I was strong in my personality and probably overstepped my bounds more than once. Um, you know, I had come from running my own locker and had been very well experienced. I'm working for a brand new master driver and I'm trying to afford him his opportunities to make his decisions and support what he wants to do. As any good sailor should do, you support the leadership in front of you, whether you agree with it or not. Especially from chiefs, senior chiefs in master chiefs amongst yep. ourselves, which yep. I agree with you a hundred percent on. Um, but I was, I was very straightforward with Matt. I told him, I went to him like, Hey, I'm not selling some things, right. I'm going to go seek some psychiatric assistance for some issues I'm having. He's like, Hey, go do what you need to do. Um, that's not what the command heard. 
So I don't know what the disconnect was between what I said to him and what was said to the command. Um, I went in for surgery and two days after surgery, I was back at my desk so I could be a body for the watch bill for, so that we could keep diving operations so he could take his family to Disney. Two days post-operative. And yeah, we're just yeah. going to leave that part there. So th that starts a series of events. And that, there's a reason why I brought this up. Yep. When we're, we're it, started, it started a series of events where it, it ended with, um, after I went on Limdu, probably, and I don't remember exactly when it was, November, December timeframe, um, or maybe it was in, it had to be November, December timeframe because we met in February. It must, so it might've been as late as January. Um, but Matt came in with a uh, counseling shit to relieve me of my duties and responsibilities because I had too many medical appointments. So it was to, a, a, a negative counseling shit to remove me as the LCPO because I had too many medical appointments while I was on the boot. Which is, which in itself is a pretty outrageous act. Uh, you can't do that. It's against right. many, many rules in the Navy. <laughs> so where I was actually going with this is at some point in time between your surgeries and going on limb due, you were introduced to a part of the Navy that uh, unless you've been introduced to it, it's almost it's almost like that special unit that you don't know about that we all know about, but you really don't called Safe Harbor. It was December. It was when I was deemed non-repairable um, that I was introduced and enrolled in Navy Wounded Warrior Safe Harbor. Which it was started around the time I got wounded in 2007. So I think it actually started 2000, late 2005. Yep. I'd been enrolled in it and kind of blew it off. Just said, whatever. Um, after I was medically retired in 11, I get phone calls once in a while and blew it off. But that same at that same point where you're going through your surgery and you've been introduced to them, I remembered there was a program they had and I reached out to them. And so you would found safe Harbor and did they do anything to try to help you at that point in time? They had, uh, they actually, um, I didn't find them. I didn't know about them. They found me. So they found you. And what did they say to you? Um, we sat down and we went over some things. Um, so at that time I was going through some psychiatric counseling for some issues that I picked up along the way. Um, I was trying to deal with the loss of mobility and loss of career. Uh, that summer I had lost my dad. So I had a, had a lot of things I was trying to process. Um, so like, yeah, you, you fall, you qualify in this program. We want to pick you up. We want to, we want to try to help you out. So they helped me with some of the medical stuff and appointments and organizations. And they asked, you know, what are, what are your interests? And I said, you know, I would love to be able to get back to be, be physical and be able to run again and do these things. And they're like, hey, we've got a program for you. So in January, they uh, sent me a screener for um, the training camp that we attended in February. I took it to my command and they, decli they declined it. They said no. And Safe Harbor came out and sat down and had a conversation with my command. And again, they said, nope. And at this point, I'd been pulled out of the dive locker. I'm working up in uh, at, the, at the main... EOD school work, uh, working on converting some of the curriculum because that's kind of, that's what my degree's in uh, about converting curriculum and, and 
creating mobile platform um, curriculum and working on these mobile devices and trying to help help set up a new program that's now come to fruition. Um, but I was at the at the baseline of that. And I was working in there until they decided it was better for me to be over at the SEAD, uh, the Center of EOD and Diving, at, working at, at over at the M5. So instead of working, I went to work for our ISIC, which is our, our command, the, the school the command's command, basically. The command's command. Because there was a lot of um, heartache. Understandable. The, the, command, the command felt it better for them to not have me there than to to keep me there um you know at, at no point did i stop working at no point did i complain about the work i was doing um i did have a lot of medical appointments <laughs> yeah <laughs> trying, to, trying to work through some things and there were some personality conflicts between myself and the cmc so you get to this new command yep safe harbor is still pu- pushing for you so if I were still pushing for me, um, I check into the, into the, the new command and, and this is, this is just backstory for perspective. Um, get pulled into the CMC's office with my warrant. Um, my warrant is the same warrant that I had worked with in Pearl Harbor. So we've got, we've got a long history. We know each other and we sit down and, and I love, I love Eric to death. He, he was on point. We sit down with the CMC and, you know, we're, we're chiefs. We know that there's, there's always that chief to chief phone call or that CMC to CMC phone call. So um, CMC, which I'll leave nameless, had received a phone call from CMC that I have some differences with. So I, I wasn't necessarily welcomed with open arms. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there had been a master diver to master diver phone call because CMC is a master diver as well. So they really, I really was not welcome with open arms. So I sit down in this closed room conversation and the question is, how the hell does a Navy diver have PTSD issues? So we, we had a very pointed conversation as far as here's what's happened with my knee. Here's what's happened in my career. Here's where I deployed. Here's where, you know, I was rocketed, mortared, shot at, had buddies blown up, you know, exposed to IEDs here, here, and here on convoys X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, kind of, kind of went over the things and the warrant looks at me and looks at the mass diver and says, well, he's that, that, that's got teeth. That makes sense. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't pull any punches. I had, I, you know, by the time I went to SEAD, I had already started my, um, process of going through physicals and stuff for the VA. So I already had a four page, here's what his injuries are list. And one of those injuries was a TBI that I didn't even know I had, <laughs> Yeah, um, we'll we'll get to that in a, in a in the next segment. Now, um, where I'm going with all this is, so you eventually get them to say, "Go ahead, yep. go to the team trials." And so, so people understand understand this is not this is adaptive sports trials, yeah. which is, I think was a big talk for everyone. Yeah, it's it's a it's. A lot of uh, our fellow teammates had some command who were active duty had some command issues. It's like, how yeah. are you broken and being able to go do sports? Yeah. Well, yeah. these are adaptive sports. And I think for both of us, it was a big eye-opening experience. And I, I, I don't know that I would still be here without it. Yeah. 
I can see that. And so what was your first impression when you got there? I don't belong. And by the time you left? I had family. Yeah. So tell us, tell them, just give me your impression of what happened over that, what, 14 days? It it really, um, a common friend of ours, Ren, and I went through the senior enlisted academy together. We were cane buddies because that was for me. I went to the SEA post-surgery uh, or pre, pre-surgery and I was using a cane because I, I had my, I was losing mobility in the left leg. And uh, so it was, it was in between surgeries, uh, five and six. And Ren had been shot in Afghanistan and did her recovery. And, and she was one of the, she was the wounded warrior participant the first ever that had been picked up to be able to go to the, the SEA and uh, so we we met there and really maintained great communication she was uh, been a great friend sister and mentor in, in a lot of respects so I go to walk into the Navy Lodge at Mayport and there's you know all these people kind of hanging out lingering around the lounge and she jumps up as Ren does, and says, Jules, and came over and gave me a hug. And uh, that took that one moment really took a lot of trepidation out of the out of the scenario for me. Yeah. So and, you what did you go? What what was your intention going there as far as the, the, the actual sporting activities? I know you were a um, swimmer and my, my intention was to try to participate in as much as I could and learn as much as I could. I, I didn't know, I really didn't know anything about the Navy team or the DOD Warrior Games. I, I went there, I was under the impression this was kind of an intro camp to adapt to sports. And I went there to see if there was anything that I could still do. And when you found out that this was not the intro camp, <laughs> that this was actually the team trials. And so people understand the DOD Warrior Games is something that was established about, would it have been 10 years this? I think it 10 years yeah, this year. 10 years ago, I think. Um, which was obviously for obvious fucking virus reasons canceled. <laughs> um, it was established, I think, 2010-11. I, I could be wrong. Where... Adapt, uh, adaptive sports, basically paralleling elements of the Paralympics for members who were initially wounded, but also expanded to injured ill, um, were able to go and compete for their service. So Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, which then also expanded out to British soldiers, French, uh, Australian. So it's almost like a military Olympics it is our very military uh, Paralympics. So yeah. Jules and I were both there for the first time in 2018. Yeah. And both of us probably had no idea what was happening at that point. In time. <laughs> I, I think we were equally clueless and equally fortunate. Yes. And so <laughs> as a person who was looking forward to doing a triathlon, when all this started to happen, yeah. like I said, you, you obviously have swimming skills. Yes. What was your biggest, um, what was your biggest sport that you thought you really want to try, but you or really missed and didn't know how you'd be able to do it again? 
running. Which has now taken off on a life of its own. So you, you talked to our, uh, our track coach, uh, yep. coach Kyle. Coach Kyle. And, um, well, it, it, it's funny cause, um, I, I, I tried out for track and because I have left leg muscular and nerve issues, um, running is not an option for me. So he put me in a track chair, which is a, I don't know. It, it's, if you imagine the rack as a medieval torture device, I would say the, the track chair is a modern day equivalent. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and you can fall out of that thing really easily. Oh yeah. You, you, you can fall out of that and not only give yourself another TBI, but give one to somebody else trying to, trying to stop it. <laughs> So you, you do this and, you know, we're, we're over there with the Aussies and the Brits that actually sent their teams out to do their trials for their yep. teams. So we're out there with 60, yeah, um, 60, 70 of us out there from the Navy, uh, another say 20 or 30 from Australia and, and Britain. And we're all learning yeah. this stuff. And you tried out for track. You tried out for tried out for track, swimming, um, shooting, volleyball. I don't think I, I don't think I tried out for basketball that year. Um, and cycling. And so we had some amazing coaches. Yes, uh, across the board. Um, Still do, but yes, yeah, we we do. And so you. Tr- like again swimming was a no-brainer for you I, once i saw you get in the water it was yeah you were uh, you you almost appeared like you didn't have any issue at all yeah i that's that that is my happy place yeah and i know that you you were going through some stuff at that time you were just from watching you from a distance when we were out of the the meet the meeting areas yeah um you ended up making what the shooting team I made shooting, cycling, track, which is funny because I, I spent one one session in the track chair, and went to Coach Kyle and said, "Hey, I greatly appreciate it, um, but this is not for me." So I, I got he picked me up for track, <laughs> and then I made swimming as well. So we we do this stuff, and we have made great bonds me you yeah. timmy joe ren all of us are still great friends we had our own little chief's Absolutely. mess there uh bill and furland on all these guys who i hope to get on the show at some point in time yeah. and then we leave and yes. we're told two to three weeks and we'll find out whether you made it or not yep. well in that time you're going through your retirement physical yes so i uh, i had planned my retirement i was going to retire um in August, at, at, I had, had an August retirement date, so I was right at 21 years. Um, I was going to do a retirement ceremony in June, and I'm going through my retirement physical with the DMO at the schoolhouse. So is this before or after you were told that you made the team? I want to say is, it was before, right? This is before I found out I was going to make the team. I, I really didn't, I didn't expect to make the team. I was, it was great. I, uh, I had started some precursory stuff to try to get up to Walter Reed because one of the beyond just the sports and the, the, the family that, that brotherhood and sisterhood that we get out of the adaptive sports, 
the other side of that is the resources and the information. Right. It really did open up a lot of, a lot of, I have been around the wounded warrior community since I was retired in 2011 on the periphery. I never got into like trying to get into all the programs after I got out. Um, that being said, there were a lot of programs I didn't even know existed out there yeah. for adaptive sports. And I didn't even really understand what adaptive sports was until 2018. Yeah. So it's, you know, I, I learned about a lot of programs outside of adaptive sports, but some of the health programs, that too, some of the things that, you know, like I, I never knew NICO existed, which is the, you know, for, for TBIs and for PTS issues, that's the premier place to go. Now, is that only for people who have been in that special operations community or was no. that for everybody? Oh, okay. So no. anyone could go. Anybody can go to NICO. Which it, is the National Intrepid Center of Excellence. How do you get the O? I don't know. Okay um so back to where we were you <laughs> because you're probably one of the only people as a corpsman i've seen a ton of retirement physicals but i think you're the only person that i've actually seen that got this finding yep so they when when we're going through and the dmo is doing my physical um she asked a couple of key questions because she found this little lump right here so that that lovely but right there she found that and it, you know, because I was a submariner and I was a radcon diver, meaning I was a diver exposed to radiation from submarines and other, other, other sources, um, that lump becomes very concerning. And she identified some spinal issues that had come up in one of my MRIs when we did bone scans from saturation diving. And she found, you know, she found the paperwork that said TBI and said, wait a minute, you know, all this stuff is here and we've never treated you for any of it. She's like, you are unfit for retirement. And actually put that on paperwork, which oh, is yeah. extremely, I'm as far as I know, you were the only person that I have personally met who was scheduled for a regular military retirement who, when they went to go get their final physical done, they were not allowed to retire because they were was, too broke to retire. Yep. I, I was too broken to retire. So a, I had a DMO who did her job and really i mean she i i hope she does amazing things and becomes admiral one day because she really does look out for the sailor's best interest it isn't just about the navy you know she's she didn't she didn't violate any policy she didn't go above and beyond as far as she did her job and really took care of the sailor so now let me ask you this because i know I, it's it's a tough question and i i mean it with yeah. the utmost in respect to her Yep. Do you wish, is there any part of you that wishes that she didn't find that and you would have not dealt with the upending of all of the command bullshit that followed after that? Um, and just was allowed to have that date and go on terminal and... I think... I, I don't regret it. I, I, think, I, I think things would have turned out differently had she not picked that up and things hadn't continued the way they did. But I am so grateful that she found those things and we were able to get some things documented and identified so that they could be taken care of later on. Because you you know what, you know what um, most, and I don't mean this in any disrespect to any of the doctors I've worked with, and I've worked with some amazing doctors and amazing IDCs. Yeah. Um, but most people would say, hey, look, you're already got your retirement date. You're, you already got your terminal set. Um, I'm going to write this down. We're going to leave it at that and have the VA take care of it. 
that that's the wrong answer it is it, it, it truly is but th- i mean that that is i hate to say it that is not just the navy standard that is a dod standard yeah, when you're is. that close to the finish line let the va handle it there's a reason why i am a rare case in that respect yeah i i had somebody that was willing to do their job and her boss who i had worked with he was one of my dmos at nedu so he knew me from saturation days he knew about the, all the stingray stuff he knew about the war deployments. He knew about the PTS diagnoses. He he could understand where the TBIs came from because I don't have my TBIs different from yours, where yours is from a singular incident. Mine's a progressive, right? Because you, I have yours is years. Like, yeah, yours is like repetitive concussion. I mean, that's not exactly what it was, but just how the NFL players have that repetitive concussion in it. Yeah where mine was a high velocity TBI as they call it, or at least that's what the ophthalmologist at the VA called it. So as all of this shit is going on, you get notification. Hey, you made the team. <laughs> that was a and, shock. And because I bring this up because of your command and, Oh yeah, by the way, we got three camps or two camps. And then we're going a week and a half early to the games in Colorado, Colorado, blah, 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 Colorado Springs. So you need 10 days here, 10 days here, and 20 days here, which happens to have been right around the time you would have been doing your retirement ceremony had everything stayed the same. So I had to reach out. Well, first, Laura and I had a very lengthy conversation as to whether to accept the position or to decline. And she saw how happy I was and how excited I was when I came back from camp and talked about being on a hand cycle and being able to move fast and to be able to do have life experiences. She saw how much joy and how, how almost normal I was. Cause you know, you, you remember I was not, I wasn't the happy person I am now <laughs> <laughs> to say the least, to say the least. Um, I was, I was fine. I was looking without discuss, without any discussions or anything. I was trying to find a way to end my existence without having a negative impact on my family. Which would not surprise me in any way, shape or form. Yeah. I had, uh, I had figured out the, the safest way for her to be able to collect the insurance money and to make it not look like what it was, was for me to go for a long swim, to go for a long ocean swim and just not come back. Yeah. You, you glad you didn't, um, (laughs) But that was that was that was the plan. Yeah, I I know those dark days very very well, and sometimes sometimes they feel like it's the right way thing to do. And there's some people that I don't blame them if they did do it. But I'm glad you didn't. Let me put it that way. I'm not one to I, get all. Know, I'm, I'm awful glad I didn't either. I I'm very happy to have this opportunity to to be able to you know sit here and shoot the poop with you and you know to also still mentor uh the next generation of wounded warriors the i still mentor sailors that had worked for me in the past um i try to stay semi-active within our communities and i i stay active within the veteran community to to be there and we're not quite done yet (laughs) yeah we're not done yet (laughs) so no um so we do our first camp in where the hell was that first one at uh, the first one was up in Maryland, wasn't it? Was oh, the... that's right. Because no, the first one was in Port Wainimi. 
Oh, that's right. First one's in Fort Wayne, Amy, then we did I, Maryland. My events didn't take me to to Maryland. That's right. And then we ended up going to Colorado Spring, which I think probably was a highlight for most of us. Yeah. The opening ceremony, all of that, the training. Oh, yeah. um, you and I were the first two in Colorado Springs. Yeah. And took a long, uh, and you had a new friend with you. I did. So before, before we ever met, I had been introduced to a program, the Positive Love Foundation here in Santa Rosa Beach that trains service dogs for disabled veterans and children with disabilities. Um, not only trains them, but donates them as a, as a grant for those that are on active duty. It's a grant um, that has to be applied for. My wife did the application thinking that with the loss of my mobility, this would be something that'd be very helpful. So by the time we got to Colorado, I had tested and certified and started working with Phoenix, who is my, uh, now three-year-old golden retriever and my medical adaptive mobility device. And dog. Yeah, and, and dog. <laughs> <laughs> so you you and I in Phoenix, uh, I just bring this up because I thought it was kind of funny. We um, were walking back from that little Mexican food restaurant down from the hotel and we decided <laughs> to take a trail that we found out there was a ton of bears on. <laughs> it's like, eh, probably not a good idea for your services dog's first outing. <laughs> Well, you know, what's like a three to five mile hike getting lost in the woods and mountain range where we had to try to identify how to get back. Yeah. <laughs> so we get back in one piece and Phoenix is not eaten by a bear, which is a good nope. thing. So we spend what, almost two weeks in Colorado Springs? Uh, so training. Three weeks. Oh well, yeah, we do, we do about two, we do two weeks of acclimation or 10, 10 days of acclimation. And then the week of the games. And then the week of the games. Our opening day that you and I were supposed to be doing track, yeah. you and the handcart me running, nope. get, get li quite literally blown out um, yeah. at the Air Force Academy. And so we, I had to change this, I had to drop field for track and we go on and do it. At the end of this, I think it's changed pretty much everybody um, oh, yeah. across yeah, the board. You, you had amazing swims. You medaled in quite a few events, right? I well, I medaled in two events, both in a cycle, both in hand cycling. Um, I thought you I, medaled in um, swimming. No, I missed it by a tenth of a second. Oh, okay, just a tenth of a second. <laughs> so, what happened after you got back? Not with the command, but with you. Um, with me, it was uh, it was different. It was weird because it was we have all this, this fellowship and this, you know, all this communication and there's all this stuff that all this build up to the games. And then there was after the games, it was just nothing. It was like this, this huge buildup. I, I did have some benefits cause I, I had communicated with coaches. Um, a former athlete had donated a hand cycle. So I was able to maintain contact with a couple of our coaches and kind of start working towards things. Um, I started applying for some grants cause I found that the, the push rim and the track was really something that as torturous as it is, was a torture that I enjoyed. It's yes. that, you know, it's the, the, the that sadistic nature of running. <laughs> so you end up doing your med board. I, yeah, I go through my med board. And they tell you, we're not going to med board you. We're going to just let you retire. No. Or no. No. 
No, they uh, they put me through a med board and the med board found me unfit for continued service. Well, let me rephrase it. You went through your PEB and they were the ones who... Nope. No? P PEB made full recommendation uh, for med board or for, for dismissal. Right, but I thought that they uh, just said, just go normal, not... Mm -hmm. Oh, so you are medically retired. I am I am medically retired. Oh, okay. I thought, I, for some reason, I thought that you had gotten a... Nope. Cleared for normal retirement and because your shit was already there. Nope. There, there are several of our friends that have gone through that. Yeah. Because they were over 20. Um, mine, because of the, they, they didn't find the TB, TBI significant enough because it needed more documentation. So I could have fought that. Um, the knee, because, because of my job, the knee was found, you know, the maximum they, the VA will find a knee is 30%. They found the med board found it at 20%, which for my vocation, means that I'm useless. Yeah. You you can't stay. Yeah. Even and at that point in time, I think I think the damage from your command had been done to even if you but by that point a large portion of my community um had already kind of turned their back and said, yep, he's and written me off. Um that I think that was the hardest part about the whole process. Uh even you know between when I was up at the EOD school to coming down to CIOD Siad and the dive school are right there together um, as, as share the same building. So it's, you know, I'm seeing guys that I've grown up with, guys I've, I've helped study with. We've made chief together, guys that had, you know, made master diver or, you know, people would, I'd worked with throughout the years when Phoenix and I would go into the gym would, would leave. Wow. Um, that was, that was a hard pill to swallow, but it's also, you know, you got to recognize in our community, it's not, it's not like it's not a dangerous job. So nobody wants a daily reminder of their own mortality. Nobody wants to see firsthand what can happen. Well, I feel like your job is actually a, and a not, a not a dangerous job as a yeoman. Um, you're <laughs> underwater. There, there's an inherent danger to it. Yeah. Um, not, it's not a combat arms job where in the middle of 2006 2007 you're worried about going outside the wire every day but it definitely has a certain element of yeah. pucker factor to say the least yeah so you retire uh have your little retirement ceremony in december february february of 19 no because i came out and saw you in december it was january was it january it was January. I thought it was December. Okay. Yeah, that's, well, you that's had right. your you had your little thing where I came out and saw you, and then yeah. you're done. You're 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 your shit is packed. Yep. We both got invited back to trials for camp and trials for the following year, and you had a conflict, and I kind of sat last year out. Yep. Um, I had a shoulder injury, and most of the sports I was doing, I kind of need a so uh, my shoulder, so. Sad last year. I I had spent the year as an outpatient at NICO in Walter Reed. Yeah. So I was, I was commuting back and forth. I spent a year commuting back and forth. So then what has since you've been out, you have finished your master's degree. Yep. You let's go until January of 2020, because 2020 is okay. a whole nother ball of shit in itself. <laughs> so last last year you like you said spent most of late 18, 19, going back and forth between NICO and getting appointments and VA and 
all sorts yeah. of other stuff. But what yeah. have you done as you, besides just your degree, what have you taken away from all of this? And um, Well, some long-haired, hippie, Jesus-looking guy with black hair um, gave me some really good advice when I the day I that I retired. Know anyone with black hair. I know people with brown hair that look like Jesus. It, from, from the camera view, it looks black. All right, we'll, we'll go with graying or salt and pepper. I hope you die. <laughs> I will eventually. It happens. <laughs> sooner, sooner than later. That can be arranged. <laughs> I know. I know some people in your area. Panama <laughs> City is so, not that um, far away. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, where were we going? What was your? What were we oh, what, oh, so um, so the, this you 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 had given me some advice the day I retired or at, at my retirement party. Take a year off. Take a year and just don't do don't go to work. Just figure out who you are and where you want to be. And so I, I did, I took a, I took a full year off uh, from February to February. I didn't work. I collected my retirement. I took care of some things here, um, really focused on some health issues, um, had back surgery, got some new, got some new titanium parts in the lower spine, um, continued to work through some progressions, uh, had applied for some grants and some opportunities, got picked up, did some hunting, some fishing, um, really spent some quality time in the outdoors and kind of try to figure out who I am again. You know, what, uh, you know, who, cause I, I, I was no longer NBC McManus. Um, you know, I'd, I'd lost my job, lost my dad, lost my, lost my identity. And so I needed to figure out who I was going to be and who I needed to be. And, uh, I didn't, I didn't want to be the wounded warrior down the road. I didn't want to be the, that disabled guy. So I, I had to figure out, you know, who it was I wanted to be. And I, I kind of figured that out. Um, I'm still an adaptive sport athlete. I uh, still participate with Navy Wounded Warrior and I'd like to do another games. I'd like to get, I'd like to try out for Invictus, but. Which is the worldwide version of the Warrior Games. Host, uh, Prince Harry. I don't know why I almost said Henry. Prince okay. Harry uh, puts that on. But uh, right now, um, you know, I, I volunteer with Positive Love Foundation to kind of give back to them to help spread their message and provide an educational piece. And then I was very blessed in that uh, the Independence Fund provided me a grant for a racing wheelchair which I received in February of this year. And I've been working with Team Semper Fi to participate in and tra train for and participate in this year's Marine Corps Marathon, which is now virtual. And it's at the end of this month. So at the end of this month, I will do my first marathon ever. And I'm on point to be able to do that first marathon ever in less than three hours. In a push chair, which in is- a push in, in a push room race chair. Basically torturing yourself. So, okay, now we'll go into 2020 where you and I were probably patient zeros for, uh, for COVID. So we both got invited oh, yeah, back. February, who knows? <laughs> well, we both got invited to um, a training camp, which I went to in 2019, where I realized my shoulder was just too broke in Port Wayneemi. Um, Jules and I both arrived at LAX uh, middle of January 2020 yep. to go back to this camp again where we met up with some new athletes like Jules said 
still giving mentorship and advice to sailors, whether they're injured or whether they're still active duty at full capacity. We were asked to come back. I think part of that may have been because we were two previous athletes that were relatively had our heads screwed on, right? And Navy <laughs> Wounded Warrior said, hey, we want some mentorship going on here. That was the impression that was kind of given to me. Yeah. But so the the joke about why I say Jules and I may have been patient zero is we were waiting for about six, seven hours at uh, the USO and we got yeah. hungry. Only place I knew of that had decent food was the LAX International Terminal right by Cathay Airways. Yep. So if anyone got COVID first, it was probably him and I um, as we ate lunch at some Chinese quick food place. Yeah, um, which was you could kind of on the way back, if you were paying attention on the news at all, when we after we did the camp, you could really tell that there was something going on with yeah. with the infection, even in late January. Yeah, which I think I had talked to you on the phone because we talk way too much um, <laughs> and had mentioned like, hey, man, I don't think the games are going to happen. I think I'm going to sit this year out. And I kind of knew that because it was supposed to be here in San Antonio and didn't want to deal with the 115 degree heat because it would have been last week, the week before, before they canceled it. Um, but it, it's one of those things where we watched it creep all the way up. Like, okay, we're, we're not, we're going to delay the, we're going to delay when we're going to do the, um, the trials, which should have been in San Diego in the end of February, I think. Yeah. And we were told, oh, it's it's not going to affect that. I was going to drive out a week early, see family out in California. And I was like, dude, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. Um, what was your thought at that point in time? Um, separate Gumby. <laughs> uh, I, I had concerns, I, you know, obviously paying attention to the news. I had a lot of concerns as far as how how are they going to do this and keep it safe? And there, were, there was some discussion, um, you know, about doing it without families there or doing it without, without an audience. Um, you know, how do we, how do we keep the challenges to how do you, how do you take people who have had cancer or who have been blown up or who have had significant TBIs or are missing limbs? How do you take people that may be immunocompromised and keep them safe? How do you, how do you travel, have them travel to a location and keep them safe, quarantine them for two weeks and then interact, interact them, have them interact with all these other branches of service. Had this been a normal Warrior Games, I think there were 400 athletes at our games. Yeah. Plus family. Yep. So the question becomes, uh, obviously, that means that none of the international athletes would have traveled. Yeah. So then you deal with probably 100, 200, 300, because SOCOM has their own team. So probably 300 us athletes yeah. and outside of socom maybe a few of the marines maybe myself uh ren a couple one or two of the other guys on our team a handful of the army guys we were combat wounded so it was like yeah we're broke but it was an injury where the vast yep. majority of our team was illness yep and you, like you said the immunocompromised yes so let's jump into this real quick. I, can we pause right here? Because I've got dogs that need to be moved. Yeah, actually, you know what? Let's wrap this here and we will continue with a part two in a couple weeks. Sounds perfect. This is a, a good stopping point. I'm going to, we'll be releasing this soon and I will talk to you soon, man. All right. Cheers, brother. 
All right. Bye. Bye. How do I stop recording? <laughs> Hit stop. stop. Don't forget to follow us on social at www.modernronin.com, themodernronin.com on Instagram, and support us at modernronin.locals.com. <laughs>